Morning, everyone. Welcome to CNN This Morning. Glad you're with us on a Thursday morning. How are you doing? I'm great. Got a lot going on. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, September 21st. This breaking news overnight, Russia bombarding Kyiv and cities across Ukraine before President Zelensky meets with Congress and President Biden. And the Pentagon now sending 800 new active duty troops to the southern border as migrant crossings surge. And the White House gives nearly half a million Venezuelan immigrants temporary protections. Also, an urgent manhunt for a murder suspect is underway after he was mistakenly set free due to a clerical error two days after his arrest. An ex-Trump aide says Rudy Giuliani groped her while backstage during the former president's infamous January 6th speech on the ellipse. A Giuliani spokesperson denies it. And we can call it DeSantis in decline in New Hampshire. A new CNN poll shows a double-digit drop for the Florida governor. CNN This Morning starts right now. It's just so notable as you have these critical meetings for President Zelensky in Washington, both president and Congress. Kiev is just being bombarded Kiev by is, Russia. Kiev is being bombarded. Ukraine is now, it seems to be striking back and all through the lens of they need more and have made clear they need more. And where Zelensky will be visiting today is a place that's not sure they're going to give them more. Capitol right. Hill. Nor are the majority of American people. So exactly. let's watch this closely. This is the breaking news we start with this morning. This bombardment of Kyiv and other cities we should note across Ukraine as President Volodymyr Zelensky will be on Capitol Hill today. The widespread strikes come just hours before Zelensky will meet with lawmakers. He will plead, as Phil said, for more weapons, more aid. His visit to Washington comes at a very fraught time. House Republicans in chaos and the government hurtling towards a shutdown potentially just nine days away, and some conservative hardliners want to cut off aid for Ukraine. Now, Zelensky has a packed schedule today. In a few hours, he has a closed-door meeting with House lawmakers. After that, he'll meet with the entire Senate in the old Senate chamber before visiting the Pentagon. This afternoon, he'll be headed to the White House for talks with President Biden. We have team coverage, not just here at home, but also uh, overseas as well. Uh, we have Lauren Fox in Washington, D.C., also Fred Plaikett on the ground in Ukraine. And Fred, we want to start with you. Uh, these widespread missile strikes seemingly uh, very intentional given what Zelensky is doing today. What's your sense of what's happening on the ground? Yeah, I think, first of all, you're absolutely right, Phil. Very intentional and certainly also very much fitting into the season that we have here in Ukraine, some of the things that are going on on the battlefield as well. The Ukrainians are saying that these massive strikes that started in the early morning hours of today targeted civilian infrastructure, but also targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure as well. And that's something that is absolutely significant because the Ukrainians say that they haven't seen strikes on this scale here in this country on the energy infrastructure in the past six months. And it comes as the weather is getting colder in Ukraine and we're moving towards the heating season. So the Ukrainians say the Russians could be setting up for massive attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure right as the heart of winter uh, approaches here in this country, obviously devastating for the civilian population. The Ukrainians say that there were 10 strategic bombers that the Russians launched and fired 43 cruise missiles towards the territory of Ukraine. The Ukrainians said with the air defenses that they have, they were able to shoot down 36 of those cruise missiles, but obviously some of them came through hitting targets, first and foremost, in the west of the country and in the central part of the country. There were big powder, power outages in those parts of the country, and also one hotel was hit, wounding a lot of people. And that's where we get to President Zelensky's visit to Washington, D.C. today. Of course, one of the things that Zelensky has been talking about that the Ukrainians say they need 
is more air defense. They say that especially the U.S. systems that are on the ground here in Ukraine have been performing really well. The Patriot systems, the NASM systems, the, Ukra the Ukrainians just saying they need more of that. And certainly today is definitely a case in point for them where they say they definitely need more protection of their skies to be more successful on the battlefield, but also to prevent things that we saw this morning, guys. Yeah. For sure. Fred, we're so glad you're there. Thank you for the reporting. And let's now turn to Washington, where Lauren Fox is in the nation's capital. Uh, Lauren, we've been watching this spending fight play out for days and days and days. Ukraine aid is a critical piece of that. Is Zelensky's visit expected to change any dynamics right now? Well, today, when Zelensky comes to Capitol Hill, Phil, he'll be walking into a discussion with a House speaker who just announced last night in his conference meeting that he was going to be moving forward with a short-term spending bill that will not include any funding for Ukraine. McCarthy is in a bitter fight to get the votes he needs to avert a government shutdown. And that is the dynamic at play right now when Zelensky visits the Hill. Thank you so much. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky returning to Capitol Hill for the second time in less than a year. Only this time, the political landscape in Washington has shifted. The first thing I'll tell you is there's no money in the House right now for Ukraine. It's not a good time for him to be here, quite frankly. Um, that's just the reality. While there is still broad bipartisan support to fund that war effort in Ukraine, Republicans in the House are bitterly divided as they debate a path forward to avert a government shutdown. Cracks in the conference have been building for months. In July, 70 House Republicans voted to strip Ukraine of all U.S. military aid as part of the debate on the defense bill. While Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell has been a dogged supporter of funding the war. Well, these people in Ukraine who are fighting for their independence are taking on one of the two big adversaries we have, Russia and China. It seems to me we ought to be helping. McCarthy, facing growing rebellion in his right flank, has been more circumspect. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability and the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? The skepticism reflects a shift in public opinion. A CNN poll in August found most Americans are now opposed to more Ukraine funding. Among Republicans, that number is higher, at 71 percent. Our people can't afford their electric bills, their gas bills, or their food bills. And before we send blank checks to some other country, we need to take care of our people. Today, Zelensky will make his case to bipartisan leaders, including McCarthy, who will ultimately decide if he'll cross his hardliners to put Ukraine aid to a vote. But if he lives in this constant fear that one member on his far right is going to take the action of motioning to vacate the chair, thereby, you know, removing him from the speakership, I mean, we are making day-to-day -day decisions or not making day-to-day -day decisions because one guy wants to keep his job. But as the war in Ukraine rages on, even Republicans who may back the effort say they want more accountability. And this administration has both accountability and transparency issues they've got to address before they deserve another penny. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden made his impassioned plea to the United Nations, warning of the cost of inaction. If you allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? 
And over in the Senate, while there is more bipartisan support for Ukraine funding, there are already signs that if they try to move a short-term spending bill that includes that funding, they may run into issues. Senator Rand Paul firing off a missive on Twitter yesterday warning that he will slow walk any bill that includes Ukraine aid. Phil? Uh, Lauren, before I let you go, I do want to ask, the, the Senate confirmed its first major military nominee in months, new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but Tommy Tuberville continues to stand in the way of hundreds of other promotions. Uh, do we have any sense that Tuberville is about to pull back? Yeah, absolutely not, Phil. In fact, yesterday when Chuck Schumer went down to the floor to make the decision that he was going to put these three top brass military nominations to a vote, it was a massive surprise. That is because he had been saying for months that this was Republican leaders' responsibility to find a way forward with Tuberville. But Tuberville was going to use a rarely deployed tactic on the floor to try to advance these nominees himself. The argument that I am hearing from Democrats is there was no other choice. But at this point, Tommy Tuberville feels like he had a victory yesterday, forcing Schumer to put these nominees on the floor. Yeah. It, the Capitol building is a building in desperate need of multiple breakthroughs and none on the horizon right now. Lauren Fox, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. This breaking overnight, the White House will send 800 new active duty troops to the southern border. This as we see pictures like this out of Eagle Pass, Texas. You've got crowds of migrants under a bridge. The mayor there says 2,500 people crossed the border yesterday alone. Arlette Sines joins us at the White House. This uh, joins another move made by the administration. We'll get to that in just a moment. But is there a sense that this will make a significant difference? I mean, they already have thousands of, of active duty troops down there. Yeah, I mean, those images that you see, the number of people who have been coming to the U.S.-Mexico border suggests that there is a strain on some of the capacities uh, and abilities of the enforcement that's already down there. But the Department of Defense will be sending 800 active duty military personnel down to the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, this is already on top of about 2,500 National Guard who are already working down there. You also have 24,000 CBP agents and other non-uniformed agents and law enforcement personnel, uh, all that are currently dealing with what has been an uptick in border crossing. Just earlier in the week, uh, there were figures that there were more than 8,000 migrants who had been coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. That's akin to the numbers that we saw before the lifting of Title 42. And in the city of Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, the mayor there has declared or uh, issued an emergency declaration due to this increase. Uh, A source had told us there are about approximately 3,000 migrants who were processed there just yesterday. So the fact that the White House, that the Department of Defense will be deploying additional personnel down there, it's not unprecedented, but it does show how they are trying to get an additional handle on this emerging situation. Interesting the timing it comes as the administration makes this move to um, give this temporary protected status under their parole ability to Venezuelans already in, in the United States. Obviously, this comes with the context of a lot of criticism, even from some Democratic mayors like Mayor Adams here in New York about the migrant crisis here. Talk to us about what this will actually change and what it will mean for those migrants. Yeah, I mean, not, in addition to strains on the border, there's also been cities who have been uh, discussing how there are strains on their own systems as they are dealing with this influx of migrants. Now, extending this new temporary protected status to these Venezuelans, it will apply to those who came to the country uh, before July. And it's expected, DHS says, to apply to about 472,000 Venezuelans. Of course, there had already been TPS extended to them back in May of 2021 to those who had arrived before then. But what this will do is that it will prevent 
their removal from the country. And it will also uh, issue some work authorizations for them, foregoing some of uh, the oftentimes months-long processes that it takes in order to get work authorization. Now, this is something that some Democrats have been calling for, including New York City Mayor Eric Adams. They have been dealing with a large population of Venezuelans coming in, into their uh, city. And you've heard some de Democrats from New York overnight praising the administration for this decision. But it really speaks to the additional strains that some of these cities have been uh, facing at this moment. And now the White House is taking additional steps to try to offer some relief. Okay, Arlette, thank you for the reporting from the White House this morning. Bill. Well, alarm bells, they may be ringing for Ron DeSantis and his campaign in the crucial early primary state of New Hampshire. A new CNN poll shows him slipping behind his GOP rivals, plus new and disturbing allegations against Rudy Giuliani. Former White House aide and star witness in the January 6 hearings is now claiming she was groped the day of the insurrection. We'll have details. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This morning, we are learning details of a new allegation made by former Trump aide Cassidy Hutchinson. She claims in her new memoir, Enough, that behind the scenes at the Trump rally at the Ellipse on January 6th, Rudy Giuliani groped her. Hutchinson worked for Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and provided crucial testimony to the House January 6th committee. This was the scene on that day right near the Capitol where Trump and Giuliani both spoke before a large crowd of Trump supporters telling them to, quote, fight like hell before rioters stormed the Capitol, delaying the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Backstage, Hutchinson says Giuliani approached her with a stack of papers in his hand, claiming to have evidence of voter fraud. And then she says this happened, quote, Rudy wraps one arm around my body, closing the space that was separating us. I feel his stack of documents press into the small of my back. I lower my eyes and watch his hand, his free hand, reach for the hem of my blazer. Hutchinson says she felt, quote, his frozen fingers trail up my thigh. He tilts his chin up. The whites of his eyes look jaundiced. My eyes dart to John Eastman, who flashes a leering grin. Hutchinson further writes, I fight against the tension in my muscles and recoil from Rudy's grip, filled with rage. I storm through the tent on yet another quest for Mark, a clear reference to her then boss, Mark Meadows. Two of her former colleagues in the Trump White House, they're backing her up. She was someone that I knew to be someone of good character, someone in, of integrity. And I have no reason to um, doubt her account of these events. Well, I trust her implicitly. Um, I remember about two years ago her alluding to something, and I don't want to misrepresent the words, that either he was creepy or handsy with me. But to put it into bigger context, those of us who were working the West Wing at that time knew that Rudy Giuliani was a wild card. 
Now, as for Giuliani's perspective, his political advisor denied the claims, writing in a statement, quote, it's fair to ask Cassidy Hutchinson why she is just coming out with these allegations from two and a half years ago as part of the marketing campaign for her upcoming book release. This is a disgusting lie against Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a man whose distinguished career in public service includes taking down the mafia, cleaning up New York City and comforting the nation following September 11th. We'll continue to follow that, of course. Meantime, in the 2024 race for the White House, the Ron DeSantis campaign looks to be on life support in New Hampshire. Take a look at this new CNN poll in the state. DeSantis has plummeted to fifth place. He has shed 13 points in that state since July. Donald Trump still leads the field with 39 percent of support among likely Republican primary voters. Let's talk about this and a lot of fascinating numbers in this poll. Michelle Price is with us, reporter, national reporter, uh, political reporter. Also, Alex, Axios national political reporter Alex Thompson is with us. Bloomberg White House and politics editor Mario Parker and Associated Press national political reporter. Um, thanks for joining us since I screwed up all your intros. Appreciate you being here. <laughs> it's uh, our fault. We, know, we know who we are. Distinguished titles, <laughs> lengthy titles. Ellie has like 17 bullet points you have to hit. That's on them. That's, That's on true. them. Let's be honest. But because I botched yours the most, Michelle, I'm going to begin with you. DeSantis is at 13%, which actually puts him even with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. There's this like interesting four-way tie, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, et cetera. But it's the, it's the amount that he has fallen in a state that he has focused on so much after a number of blunders by his campaign and then the reset. So now what? Yeah, I mean, it's not even just New Hampshire. There's been a couple of national polls recently that have shown this yes. same drop. Um, you know, it, it, that's this kind of... There's two things here. One, I mean, he's clearly struggling and, and not succeeding after two or three resets. You know, he's dropping further. But again, he's just still so far away from Donald Trump. He's not gaining on him. He's falling further away and he's losing the battle for second place right now. It's, it's hard to see how you turn this around when he's had resources coming in. He's had multiple states. He's had resets. And it's just getting worse for and him. Big donors holding back, saying no more money until you guys figure this out. Yeah, and he's he's in Texas this week trying to get more donations. Where it's unclear, you know, if that's working out. And trying to talk about policy, laying out his energy plan as well. Alex, I think these are the moments where you have to ask: Is this a kind of a death spiral moment for the campaign, or is there a bounce back? Because national polls are one thing. Campaigns always say, "Well, look at the state polls; it's totally different. You're not feeling it on the ground. You're not there." They've always pointed to Iowa. New Hampshire was viewed as an opportunity early on. What does this tell us, big picture? I mean, big picture, this is a huge victory for Donald Trump. I can tell you that Trump's team was focused on one objective from the very beginning, which is we want to change this from a two-man race between Trump and DeSantis to Trump versus everyone else. And what you can see, there's a four-way tie for second place. DeSantis could come back, but the fact is the fundamental nature of this race, which was a Trump versus DeSantis race early on, has fundamentally changed to Trump versus everyone else. And you're going to see basically sort of like a doggy pile of everyone trying to, you know, go over each other in that debate next Wednesday. And that only helps Donald Trump if there is not a clear, viable alternative to him. That's a good point. Do you, uh, looking at the abortion um, numbers in this poll, what it found in New Hampshire, voters who support Trump, 78 percent support a nationwide ban after 15 weeks. That is not something Trump has said that he supports. He's actually said like everything all over the map criticizing the way Republicans have handled this, criticizing DeSantis's six-week ban after previously supporting the previous 15-week ban in Florida. I think it's interesting that the Wall Street Journal editorial board, the headline is, why is Donald Trump afraid to debate? And the number one issue why they say he should is because of his stance on abortion. 
Yeah, well, the Trump team will say, will point to last weekend, right, uh, as a reason why he shouldn't debate, right? So we had a scoop yesterday at Bloomberg that he's not planning to uh, debate in the third debate. We were thinking that he probably would, given it was in Miami, Florida, et cetera. If you look at what happened, he kind of stuck his head out of the ground, went to mainstream media, um, answered questions, policy questions. And we saw for the first time that DeSantis, even though his campaign is struggling, he pounced on that opportunity, right, to really draw a contrast with Trump on policy. He's always had this uh, strategy of outflanking Trump to the right. And you saw that. You saw Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds kind of take a swipe at Trump as well. So he gave his opponents some grist with which to attack him. So that's a reason why you don't want to see him on a debate stage if you're Chris Lasavita or some of his other staff members. I wonder if it gives some of his opponents some openings. I mean, I think that's the biggest question. We were talking earlier this week after the NBC interview and saying, in a normal Republican primary, this would be a really bad moment and a really dangerous moment. This is not a normal Republican primary. The front runner's up by 40 plus points nationally, 10, 15, 20 points statewide. But the immediate thing, Michelle, you think about is Iowa, right? Iowa, evangelical voters, the core of that Republican primary. Is there an actual opening here that anyone else in that primary can take advantage of? Well, if there is, it's it's dwindling. I mean, you know, we, we won't really know until those caucus goers start showing up. But Trump is campaigning heavily there right now, trying to cut off the legs of anybody who's trying to get some early momentum in that state. Um, but, you know, we've seen voters there who are willing to give him a pass on other issues, too. Uh, you know, his his marriage, marriages, you know, that don't really dovetail with evangelical values. He's still very popular and beloved in the evangelical community. Yeah, he really is. Um, which is so interesting compared to Mike, Mike Pence, who shares a lot of those values and has had the consistent position on abortion for his entire political career. Ellie, Merrick Garland, big testimony yesterday in front of House Judiciary. First time he's testified publicly since um, Donald Trump's indictments and Hunter Biden's indictment. I just want for people who didn't watch all many hours, here is a little bit of it. I reaffirm today I am not the president's lawyer. Doesn't it look weird that he's making he's become this immediate success in the art world as his dad is president of the United States? Isn't that odd? I'm not going to comment about any specific... Not going to comment, not going to investigate. No one has told me uh, to indict, and in this case, the decision to indict was made by the special counsel. So that statement the president made on Sunday was false? I'm just going to say again that uh, no one has told me uh, who should be indicted uh, in, uh, in, in, in any matter like this. And uh, the decision about indictment was made by Mr. Smith. The fix is in. Even with the face-saving indictment last week of Hunter Biden, everyone knows the fix is in. There's one investigation protecting President Biden. There's another one attacking President Trump. Justice Department's got both sides of the equation covered. What, what do we need to know about what happened yesterday? Obviously, there's a lot of political fireworks and a lot of yeah. things done for camera. But what did he actually say that matters? So Merrick Garland was trying to do two things at once here, as all attorney general in that position try to do. On the one hand, he was trying to stand up for the independence and integrity of the Justice Department. On the other hand, he was trying to do it while saying absolutely nothing. And he's hamstrung, necessarily, because as the AG, you cannot go into details of pending investigations. To do that would jeopardize those investigations. It would jeopardize the rights of the people being investigated. I do think Merrick Garland succeeded on one count and sort of did not succeed on the other count. I think he successfully and clearly explained that the decision to charge Donald Trump was made by Jack Smith, 
that Joe Biden, the president, had nothing to do with that, notwithstanding Trump's constant refrain of the, quote, Biden indictments. That I think Garland was crystal clear on. There's no evidence to the contrary. The Hunter Biden issue, I think there's many questions that remain that Merrick Garland did not adequately explain. And again, to the extent he can't, he can't say, let me explain to you exactly what's happening behind the scenes, why we've made this decision, why we've charged him thus far with gun crimes. Here's what may come. So I think there's still plenty of questions about Hunter Biden, and we'll see some of that picked up next week, perhaps in the impeachment inquiry when that kicks off. You know, Alex, to that point, I think, and this dovetails with what Poppy's saying, you watch these hearings and you know how much of it is kind of theatrical, performative. They want it on their YouTube channels. But there are, to Ellie's point, a a series of questions related to the Hunter Biden, the failure of the plea deal, the indictment that came, the special counsel, um, that clarity is lacking, regardless of whether anybody did anything wrong outside of what's been charged up to this point. When you talked to folks yesterday after the hearing, did anybody pick up and say, "Woo, that was that was a moment that's going to matter later on? Well, I can tell you that people inside the White House have been, including yesterday, have been increasingly frustrated with Merrick Garland. It's not just Republicans that are upset with him. It's actually people in the White House as well, because they essentially think that Merrick Garland, in an attempt to placate people like Jim Jordan, who people in the White House and allies of the White House think are operating in bad faith, you're never going to placate him. I mean, in an effort to do that, he's essentially outsourced every difficult political decision to special counsels. And so now you have this case where the most politically fraught cases, the documents case against Joe Biden, the Hunter Biden case, and the, Trump, and the cases against Donald Trump are all now outsourced to special counsels. The AG has promised to give them independence, so he has no control. And we're going to an election where, all of, where the AG does not have control of the most politically sensitive cases. And this is what has really frustrated some folks in the White House and, and Biden allies as well. It's so interesting to hear that. We've talked about that very topic here. It seems to be Merrick Garland's go-to fallback procedure, just pick a special counsel off my plate. He thinks that unpoliticizes something. I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point from what's going on inside the White House. Um, your titles are all, are all extraordinary, um, but <laughs> I'm not gonna even going to read them because I screwed them up. I just I'm going to work under the assumption that everyone knows them and that they assume I know them by heart. Um, Mario, Alex, Ellie, Michelle, thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank it. You. All right, this. A black teenager in Texas suspended from school because of his hair. But could his school be breaking the law? We have that reporting ahead. And right now, an urgent manhunt is underway in Indianapolis after officials accidentally released a murder suspect from jail. What we're learning this hour. Stay with us. I want them to change their policies. I want them to stop being discriminated, discriminatory against black and brown kids. Not just mine, but any other black and brown kid. So that is the mother of a 17-year-old student speaking out against a school district in Texas that has suspended her son because of his hair. Gerald George wears locks, but his school, Barbers Hill High School, suspended him twice because they say that wearing his hair that way violates the district's dress code. Now the school is asking the courts to step in and clarify whether its policy is legal. Ryan Young has been tracking this story for us. I I think a lot of people waking up this morning are going to be sort of stunned that this is even a thing that someone would be suspended for. But it is, and now it's going through the courts? It is, but if you talk to a lot of brown people, they say they've faced this before. Look, 17-year-old Daryl George and his mother are vowing to continue to fight with school administrators over his hair. Now, it's important for everyone to see it. Take a look at how his hair is pulled up, styled, and wrapped close to his head. 
Daryl attends Barber's High School just outside of Houston. They say his hair violates the district uh, grooming code, which states male students' hair will not extend at any time below the eyebrows or below the earlobes. The policy goes on to state male students' hair must not extend below the top of a T-shirt collar or be gathered or worn in a style that would allow the hair to extend below the top of a T-shirt collar. The dress code also goes on to say they want kids dressed in a clean and neat manner. But Daryl was suspended around the same time the state of Texas um, new Crown Act was put into place. And that stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. The act prohibits race-based discrimination, which is the denial of employment and educational opportunities because of hair texture or protective hairstyles, including braids, locks, twists, or bantu knots. As you can imagine, Daryl's mom is willing to fight over this one. I'm trying to figure out how he's getting violated when y'all never seen his hair let down. How do y'all know it's below his eyebrows? His grades are, are failing. Like they're going down drastically. He's not getting a proper education. He's not getting the proper instructions. I'd like to go back to class and do what I do, what I do, do what I need to do to get my education. Yeah, and Poppy, look, this extends beyond just this fight inside the classroom. There's a, obviously a reason why the Crown Act was put into place. There's a lot of people who've had their hair be put in front and center when it comes to employment, getting the right jobs, education. And of course, when you see that lock style, a lot of people are trying to move to the natural hairstyle. It's not cheap hairstyle that he has on top of his head there. And it is all neat, close to the head. But that conversation is now extending. The Internet is all over this one because obviously people believe the next step was going to take place with the Crown Act. That school's now basically saying they want clarification when it comes to how long hair can be with this uh, school regulation. And Poppy? Is, are they going to keep him out of school until the courts figure this out or does he get to go back and, soon? And that, and that is the big question at this point. It'd be interesting to see what happens because it seems like he's being penalized in a way because of this hair. And at the end of the day, isn't this all about education? That is the big question. Brian Young, I'm glad you brought us that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, also this morning, this jarring story. An urgent manhunt is underway in Indiana for a murder suspect after he was released from jail by mistake just two days after his arrest. Kevin Mason walked out of the detention center on September 13th due to what a sheriff's office described as, quote, faulty records review by civilian staff. Officials say the clerk thought she was correcting duplicate bookings and removed two holds on Mason's file. Two employees have been fired for allowing him to go free, but the sheriff admits chronic understaffing is part of the problem, saying, quote, they're underpaid. That's not an excuse, but it's a fact. Now they're scrambling to locate Mason. Mason's girlfriend was arrested Wednesday afternoon on suspicion of assisting a criminal. So very soon, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine will meet face to face with some of the people who do not want to keep funding Ukraine's fight against Russia. What to expect when he returns to Washington? That's ahead. And superstar soccer player Lionel Messi had to leave last night's Inter-Miami game in the first half after an apparent injury. He was subbed in the 37th minute against Toronto FC. It's not clear how hurt Messi is or how he hurt himself at all. Inter-Miami's coach says Messi and another player who appeared to be injured will be evaluated. Inter-Miami went on to beat Toronto, even without Messi, 4-0. Stay with us. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will be in Washington today. He is trying to convince lawmakers that the United States should keep providing this level of military assistance and funding to Ukraine. The last time he was in Washington was in December of last year. He addressed that joint session of Congress. 
and was met with loud applause from both sides. But this year, Kevin McCarthy did not invite Zelensky to address the House. He will meet with McCarthy, though I should note, behind closed doors. Here's what the House Speaker said in March of last year versus just this week. This is an unwarranted war that they did not ask for, but they're willing to defend the right of freedom. We should stand with anyone that's willing to defend freedom. I think that room's united to defend and help um, Ukraine get the weaponry they need to defend themselves. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability and the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? Joining us now is the chair of the Freedom House's Board of Trustees and former Democratic Congresswoman Jane Harmon. It's good to have you here. Thank you. This also comes on a day when McCarthy's proposal here to keep the government running has no you know, additional funding for Ukraine in it. The majority of American people, not by a lot, but 55 percent do not support increased aid to, to Ukraine. Where do you think this goes? Well, I think they don't support more reckless spending. I think that's the bottom line here. They want to rein in the budget, but this is not the way to do it. Uh, supporting Ukraine is essential to freedom in the rest of the world. If Russia's not stopped in Ukraine, Russia moves into Europe. Uh, Putin's already said that and threatens other parts of the world, too, which is why it's so important that uh, NATO is the NATO alliance is growing stronger and is even talking about expanding in some ways to Asia and why it's so important that the Biden administration is shoring up other parts of the world. So uh, let's start there. Uh, the funding is the right thing to do. And the hypocrisy of all these people who supported it five minutes ago and now don't is just rich. Uh, in this case, uh, what I hope happens is uh, there are small meetings, no need for a big clown show in the House, sadly. I served there for nine terms, but it is a different place. Uh, no need for that. Uh, small meetings, I know, because I've talked to them, that Republican chairs of major committees in the House support increased funding, as does the Senate, starting with Mitch McConnell. So I hope that there is a compromise, something like aid for Ukraine, maybe more border aid, uh, maybe a CR or a budget, I imagine, a CR, and the establishment of a fiscal commission, much like Simpson-Bowles, if anyone remembers that, remember from, well. from days past, uh, to put on the table everything, spending, entitlements, I'll say it, entitlements, and taxes, and try to come to a, a, a comprehensive resolution that everyone can buy into. Sadly, the Obama administration, or President Obama, and Paul Ryan, then the Speaker of the House, walked away from uh, Simpson Bowles and Ryan was on the committee. And I think we have paid a huge price in prestige and responsibility for that. It took me years to get over the nightmares after covering that committee on Capitol Hill. So I appreciate you bringing that back um, for me. You mentioned Mitch McConnell, and this is actually something that I've been interested in the last several weeks. He has gone to the floor almost daily mm -hmm. and made the pitch for Ukraine aid yeah. and made it in a way that I think if you read underneath what he's saying, um, it seems to be an implicit criticism that the Biden administration is not doing a good enough job of selling it, of explaining the why, and also explaining where this has actually come from. It's not necessarily just straight taking taxpayer dollars and sending right. it over. Right. Do you think the Biden administration uh, hasn't done a good enough job of explaining how this all works? Well, I don't think uh, we have done over recent years a good job of explaining why the U.S. needs to be engaged in the world. There's a growing, uh, sadly, isolationist sentiment on the right of the Republican Party, and a few Democrats don't get it either. Uh, I think Biden is doing a good job of selling it. I think his uh, Tony Blinken and he and Jake Sullivan all have explained 
uh, why U.S. engagement matters. And he's walking the walk. I mean, he has helped to revive NATO. I mean, Ukraine was was the impetus for that. But NATO is now a strong and modern uh, defense alliance, and we are a key part of it. We pay about 50 percent of the funding uh, for NATO's operations in Ukraine. And uh, I hope the other countries will step up more. I agree with Donald Trump about that. <laughs> Might be one of the few things I agree with him about. But but hey, but I think Biden's selling it well. Mitch McConnell has to differentiate himself uh, from Biden because he's leading the Republican caucus in the Senate. But he is an institutionalist and he strongly supports Ukraine funding. And I commend him for that. Let's turn to Israel. Um, President Biden meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, here in New York yesterday and inviting him to Washington. Um, let's just take a quick listen to what, what they said. We're going to discuss some of the hard issues, and that is upholding democratic values that lie at the heart of our partnership, including uh, checks and balances in our systems, and preserving a path to a negotiated two-state solution, and uh, ensuring that Iran never, never acquires a nuclear weapon. I believe that uh, working together we can make history and create a better future for the region and beyond. This comes in the context of, you know, what he is doing in Israel and the far right government and these judicial reforms, et cetera. You have been um, impressed by Tom Friedman's analysis of what he's asked Biden to do and press Netanyahu on. What do you make of what we saw yesterday? Well, there has to be a connection between the U.S. and Israel. Let's understand that we were the first country in 1948 to recognize the existence of a pluralist democracy and homeland for the Jews in the Middle East. And uh, I, I think all of us uh, appreciate that. And there's been strong bipartisan support for Israel forever. Certain moves of this administration are troubling, certainly to me personally. Um, I think maintaining the pluralist democracy is central to, to Israel's future. And the good news there, uh, if there is some, is that there are protesters every weekend, hundreds of thousands of protesters protesting peacefully in the country. That is some evidence of a democracy. Um, but at any rate, I think that the future here is to, to keep the relationship, quietly coax Bibi to perhaps change a few directions. Um, but also, if this deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel ever happens, uh, there will be some requirements, uh, I certainly think there will be on both sides, but on the Saudi side and on the Arab side, uh, Israel will have to uh, find a way to take uh, active steps to promote a Palestinian state. I'm not applauding the leadership of the Palestinian Authority. I think it is corrupt and, and needs, I would hope they would change to something more modern and democratic. But over time, a two-state solution is the best protection for Israel, and I think Bibi's far-right government uh, is not open to that. So maybe, just maybe, uh, that coalition will change in Israel, coalition will change in the Palestinian Authority, and, and some more steps will be taken uh, by the Arab neighbors, and there'll be a more peaceful region. And I think that's Biden's vision. Uh, our policy is to support a two-state solution. It still is. And I think that's the right policy. Not the reality on the ground right not now with now. this government, not for now. sure. Uh, former Democratic Congressman Jane Harmon, thanks for being at the table. Well, history has been unintentionally made in space. An American has spent a full year orbiting Earth, but that wasn't actually the original plan. If you had known at the time you launched that you were going to be up in space for a full year instead of six months, would you have still done it? 
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. A historic milestone for NASA astronaut Frank Rubio, breaking the record as the American, first American to spend a full year in space. Light speed and, and liftoff. A sunset start to the mission of Rubio, Prokopiev, and Patelin to the International Space Station. He rocketed into space exactly 365 days ago and then spent an extra six months aboard the International Space Station because of trouble with a Russian ride home. CNN's Kristen Fisher reports. And liftoff. A few weeks before NASA astronaut Frank Rubio launched to the International Space Station with two cosmonauts on a Russian Soyuz rocket, I spoke with him about the geopolitical tensions that he'd be leaving behind on Earth. Did you ever have any second thoughts about flying on a Russian Soyuz in the middle of this uh, conflict with Ukraine? Uh, you know, again, not, not really, because I do. I trust my crew wholeheartedly. If anything, right, there's a little bit of nerves about the whole big picture of, of going to space for the f- first time, spending six months up there. But six months quickly turned into a full year after his ride home, the Soyuz spacecraft, was struck by a small object in space puncturing the Soyuz's radiator and spewing coolant into space. A stream of particles. Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, decided the spacecraft was unsafe and a replacement Soyuz would need to be sent to bring the crew home. For Rubio, who was on his first space flight and had just become the first Salvadoran American to go to space, it meant being away from his wife and four children for double the time that he'd been preparing for. If you had known at the time you launched, that you were going to be up in space for a full year instead of six months. Would you have still done it? Yeah, hey, Kristen, it's uh, good to talk to you again. I think it would have depended on when I would have found out. Um, obviously, if um, if they had asked me up front before you start training, because you do train for um, a year or two years for your mission, um, I probably would have declined. And that's only because of family uh, things that were going on this past year. And had I known that I would have had to miss those uh, very important events, I, I just would have had to say uh, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, but once you commit to the mission, once you're part of the training, I I would have been committed to the mission. By the time Rubio returns to Earth next week, he will have been in space for 371 days, longer than any other American in history. Three spacewalks conducted dozens of science experiments, but perhaps the most interesting experiment for this army doctor turned astronaut is the one that zero gravity has been conducting on his own body. The reality is we're not standing, we're not walking, uh, we're not bearing our own weight. And so it'll be anywhere from two to six months before I essentially say, that I feel normal. And normal is exactly what Rubio's craving, spending time with his family and time outside these walls on Earth. Up here, we kind of have the the constant hum of uh, machinery that's keeping us alive. And so I'm looking forward to just being outside and uh, enjoying the peace and quiet. If all goes according to plan, Rubio will be returning to Earth next Wednesday. Phil and Poppy, just imagine what that first breath of fresh air must feel like after spending a year, essentially, you know, living inside of a machine. Yeah, it's 
Great piece. Great story. Very angry family. <laughs> Kristen Fisher, thanks Wait, so much. Wait, before you go, welcome back. We have missed your thank glowing you. face on television oh, and thanks. your great reporting, and we're just so glad you're back. And congrats on the thanks. little one. Thanks. It's good to be back. You got it. Ahead, more on the new CNN polling that is promising, promising, I should say, for former President Trump and Nikki Haley, but not good for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Maybe some good news out of Hollywood. In Money This Morning, there appears to be real optimism about progress to maybe ending the Hollywood writers' strike. Writers and heads of four major studios will meet for a second consecutive day today. A person familiar with the talks tells CNN yesterday attendees left the meeting feeling encouraged. The deadline is nearing for both sides to try to hammer out this deal if they want to salvage the winter portion of a new television season. The economic toll for the writers and the actors' strike is staggering. It's approaching $6 billion. When both sides are saying nothing, usually a good sign. We've got a lot more on that and so much other news. CNN This Morning continues right now. Russian missiles rain down on Kyiv as President Zelensky is in Washington to meet with lawmakers on Capitol Hill. They're going to need to look to Democrats to try to fund the government. We will stand with Ukraine as long as they need us. Republicans grilling the attorney general. Some of them couldn't seem to get their facts straight. He picks the one guy he knows will protect Joe Biden. That's about a soapbox for these baseless conspiracy theories. I have intentionally not involved myself. I am trying to pursue my responsibility. A new fight for number two, and it is not Governor Ron DeSantis. Haley, Ramaswamy, and Christie have doubled their numbers in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis is dropping like a rock in the Granite State. Anybody but Trump has to figure out, is there some other way? Morning, everyone. Happy Thursday. Thursday. We're so glad you're with us. Maybe it's not over. The polling, the race, it's interesting. There's a Maybe lot to do. it's not into. a done deal. There's also, I think the issues we were talking about earlier in the week, particularly on abortion, perhaps uh, giving some of the others in the Republican primary some grounds to make some headway, particularly in Iowa for Ron DeSantis, probably not in New Hampshire based on the most recent polling. Yes. But she also focus here at home a huge day, a huge day in Washington, and it connects directly to the war in Ukraine. That's exactly right. And let's tell you this morning what is happening as we speak in Ukraine. Russia is unleashing a barrage of missiles on Kyiv and other cities across the country as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gets ready to meet with Congress today and also President Biden in Washington. The widespread strikes come just hours before Zelensky heads to Capitol Hill to plead for more aid and weapons. Now his visit comes at what could be generously called a very turbulent time, a government shutdown looming. House Republicans in chaos and a growing number of them completely opposed to more aid for Ukraine. Two hours from now, Zelensky is set to make his case to House lawmakers in a closed-door meeting. After that, he's meeting with the entire U.S. Senate. Then he'll stop by the Pentagon before heading to the White House for talks with President Biden. Let's start with CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Uh, Lauren, House Republicans are not exactly open-arm welcoming uh, President Zelensky. What's the expectation for what today may bring? Yeah, this is the second visit for Zelensky, Phil, in less than a year. And it looks so different than what he saw last year when he was at the U.S. Capitol. When Democrats were in control of that chamber, there was a joint meeting of Congress. And he had an opportunity really to see a sea of yellow and blue on the floor of the House as members were standing behind him. Now he is facing a new speaker who is facing his own rebellion on the right and is struggling to keep his conference together 
as he tries to fund the government. And right now, there is not an appetite among Republican hardliners to give Ukraine more aid. That is what Zelensky is up against this morning when he walks into a bipartisan meeting with House leaders and committee chairmen as he tries to make his case. He will not have an opportunity to meet with the full Republican House of Representatives, where he might be able to argue for more money with members like Byron Donalds. Here he is. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is there's no money in the House right now for Ukraine. It's not a good time for him to be here, quite frankly. Um, that's just the reality. And the picture in this the picture in the Senate, Phil, is going to look very different. There's a bipartisan meeting with all members of the U.S. Senate invited and leadership. That is a place where Ukraine funding has been front and center. As Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has made clear, he thinks additional money for Ukraine should be included even on a short-term spending bill. So that just gives you a sense of the dichotomy here that's happening on Capitol Hill between not even just Republican and Democrats, but also Republican leaders in the House and Senate. Yeah, such a dramatically different environment from last year when Zelensky was here. Uh, Lauren, I do have to ask, Republicans have been trying to figure out in the House how to find a path forward on that uh, stopgap bill. Uh, Kevin McCarthy saying that they've been making progress. Define progress for me, Lauren. Well, there's some good news and bad news. McCarthy unveiled a new plan to fund the government for just a month at a time. But one of the issues he's facing is conservative backlash. Once again, you have people like Tim Burchett saying that there are a number of House Republicans who are never going to get to yes on a short-term spending bill. And last night, there was the added development of former President Donald Trump, who still has a strong grip on the Republican Party, coming out against that plan for the short-term CR. So a very complicated picture for the speaker this morning as he wakes up again, ready for that meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky. A new plan that is dead on arrival in the United States Senate wouldn't be signed by President Biden and may not have the votes in the House Republican Conference. Orrin Fox, keeping you busy. Thank you. So also this morning, the Wall Street Journal editorial board describing this fight amongst Republicans in the conference as a, quote, circular firing squad, one that threatens to lose McCarthy both the funding battle that he wants to win, and by the way, the speaker's gavel, perhaps. Here's how Tennessee Republican Congressman Tim Burchett describes it. We're dysfunctional. It's just that simple. That simple. We are that. We are so dysfunctional. Uh, you know, we've got we've got nobody at the head. Uh, you know, I've said this, this train's left the station. Joining us now, Republican Congressman from New York, Anthony Desposito. It's nice to have you, Congressman. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I want to read you a little bit more from this Wall Street Journal editorial board because it's striking that it's in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, Hakeem Jeffries probably can't believe his luck. As House Minority Leader for less than a year, he gets to watch the Republican majority implode without having to do a thing. Are they right? Uh, I have to disagree. I mean, listen, is there uh, issues that we're facing here? Absolutely. And as any family faces discrepancies and uh, Perhaps uh, the circular firing squad is a little dramatic. Um, but what I do believe is over the last 48 hours, uh, I think as, as young children, when we're playing in the playground, uh, we sort of uh, go with people who we are friendly with um, and we make connections. And I think over the last 48 hours, uh, it's given us a lot, of the, a lot of us the opportunity to go outside of our comfort zone and have conversations but with different people throughout the country uh, to understand what they believe in, what they're fighting for, and come to some sort of consensus to move forward for the American people. But shouldn't Congressman, the American people, 
expect more than what little children do in the playground? Uh, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that over the last 48 hours, we've had a real opportunity uh, to talk to one another, to explain to each other how we represent our districts, what matters to us, and get to a consensus. And I think uh, yesterday we had mm -hmm. a, a conference meeting that lasted a few hours long. Uh, we all uh, spoke and, and talked about mm -hmm. things that mattered most to us. And I think today is uh, is a new day on all Capitol right. Hill, and I think that we're going to move forward. Fair enough. It's a new day. The sun is up. you got nine days left. Um, what came out of that conference is this proposal by McCarthy, which, by the way, is going nowhere in the Senate, but I want to know if you support it. That is spending levels, keep the government open for 30 days at $1.47 trillion spending levels. Nothing for Ukraine in there. You support that? You'd be a yes on that? Well, there's a couple of proposals and, and one more that we're going to discuss this morning. The bipartisan group, the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, came up with a plan uh, to really meet the numbers of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, as well as include uh, funding in there that the president asked for for Ukraine, uh, but while including checks and balances, which I think is super important. We don't, uh, I, many of us don't mind uh, supporting our allies, but we want to make sure that we know where the funding is going, mm -hmm. what it's being used for, and that's included in this plan. So I'm hoping that this morning, uh, more conversations are had. Uh, we can, uh, you know, take the people who are using uh, or committing policy warfare mm -hmm. and uh, make sure that uh, we move things forward. And today, again, is a new day, and I think that we are going to make progress. Okay. Well, that's good news. Can I ask you just one point that um, your former Republican colleague in Congress, Adam Kinzinger, said on CNN last night? And I want to know, you've been a supporter of, you know, more funding for Ukraine. He said, quote, my concern is the moderate wing of the party, which I think you would be part of is seeming to capitulate on the issue of Ukraine funding. That's something I don't understand. I don't know why they're doing that. They have to start playing hardball against the Freedom Club. Do you agree? Time for hardball? I do think. I think that it is time for hardball, but uh, I think that uh, there are a couple of ways to play hardball. And I think by having real conversations, by letting them know exactly how we feel, uh, what matters to our districts and what we're going to stand for, like we've done over the last 48 hours, uh, we're beginning to play hardball. And, and I think that, like I said, okay. we're going to move things forward today. All right. So I do want to obviously represent part of New York. So I want to ask you about the migrant crisis that has so been impacting New York, particularly right here where, where I am in New York City. More than 100,000 migrants arriving here. You know what Mayor Adams has said about that. I mean, he's even said that this crisis could destroy the city. Critical of the Biden administration for not giving more aid for them to deal with this. Overnight, the Biden administration did do something on this front, and that is giving this temporary protected status to almost 500,000 more Venezuelan migrants in the U.S. That's going to allow them to build a work here um, more quickly and allow them and shield them from being deported. Here's how the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, explained it. You have to be certain that you're not going to take a, a, a support a policy that's going to draw more people because places like New York really are at capacity. I thank the president for having a limit. This is for people who came before July 31st. So it's not an enticement for more to come after. Do you believe that balance was achieved? Was this a good move in your mind um, by the Biden administration? No, I don't, I don't think it was a good move. And I think uh, individuals like Kathy Hochul are so far disconnected from reality. Um, she's just trying to pander to the president uh, while understanding that the voters of New York, even those in New York City, which is a predominantly Democratic community, uh, are sick and tired of it. I mean, we had a, a hearing yesterday in Homeland Security. Uh, it's estimated that this year, New York City is going to spend $4 billion, with a B, uh, dollars on housing migrants, and we're no, looking no, at 2024. No, I hear you, Congressman. I hear you, and I'm, I'm not asking you, this is certainly not a panacea, but what I'm asking you is, is, is this one step in the right direction for some of those migrants coming to the city to be able to work, et cetera? 
you just you wholesale think this shouldn't have happened? I do. I think that uh, the, the individuals that are coming to the city right now do have the ability to work, and we don't need more and more. Like the, I rarely agree with the governor, but we are at capacity. And like the mayor of the city of New York said, who, who welcomed uh, the sanctuary city but had no plan in place, uh, this could destroy New York City. Right, Congressman, uh, we hope the new day bodes well for funding the government. Thank you very much for joining us. Be well. Be well. Little alarm bells this morning, maybe ringing for Ron DeSantis' campaign. In the crucial early primary state of New Hampshire, a new CNN poll shows him slipping behind his GOP rivals. Plus. And what happens if a Donald Trump comes back? We oh, saw I, the... I'm not even going to speculate uh, on, on climate, that. Or somebody like him with those I, views. I don't like to speculate on that for the same reason I don't like to watch horror movies. Pretty clear there, Christian Amanpour interviewing former Vice President Al Gore and getting his take on Donald Trump potentially winning again. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That is one beautiful sunrise in Miami this morning, but things not looking so sunny for Governor Ron DeSantis and his White House hopes. In this race, Ron DeSantis' campaign appears to be on life support, at least in the state of New Hampshire. Look at this new CNN poll. DeSantis has plummeted to fifth place. He has shed 13 points since July, down 32 since the beginning of the year. Donald Trump still leading the field. He has 39 percent of support among likely Republican voters. Much more on this. I found to be a totally fascinating poll. Some really good for some folks and some really not good for people like Ron DeSantis. What's going on in New Hampshire? I mean, yeah, I think you hit it exactly right. If you're Donald Trump, you love this result, right? What a surprise. Donald Trump's still well ahead in the Republican race at 39%. If you're Vivek Ramaswamy, you love this result. He's up eight points since July. If you're Nikki Haley, you love this result. She's up seven points since July. If you're Chris Christie, you love this poll because you're up five points. Ron DeSantis, you hate this poll because you're down... 13 points since July, and now we have a clown car, essentially, for second place with Ramaswamy, Haley, Christie, and DeSantis, all basically tied for second place with Donald Trump well ahead. But really, as you were pointing out, Poppy, a big story in this poll is Ron DeSantis' fall. Look at how much this has just been a considerable drop for him since January. We see this, look, in January, he's at 42. April 22, June 23, and now in September, he's at just 10 percent of the vote. He literally has less than a quarter of the share of the Republican primary vote at this point than he did at the beginning of the year when he led Donald Trump. Just talking about Trump. Yes, he has a lead. It's a little more slim now. I mean, still 39 points, but where it was. And what I found interesting when you dig into Phil's favorite part, the crosstabs. He's not even glad he was at the desk. <laughs> He's somewhere. The crosstabs. It also talks about how open some of these voters are to other people, meaning their mind isn't necessarily locked. Yeah, you know, if you were going to pick one place in my mind where I think Donald Trump may in fact lose a primary, it is the state of New Hampshire. Why is that? Take a look at the polling in New Hampshire and compare that to the other states and also nationally. And what we see is nationally, Donald Trump's at 57 percent, South Carolina, 46 percent, Iowa, 46 percent. New Hampshire at 39%. It's, in fact, his weakest state, and it's also the state where the alternatives seem to be switching around, and that is because the Trump vote is locked in, but the fact is the other voters are far more likely to switch around. They're perhaps waiting for an alternative. And let me throw you a historical example of a time in which we had— You always do so well. I try to do it so well. Go all the way back to 1999. What did we see at this point? We saw George W. Bush with a 30-point lead over Dole and a 32-point lead over John McCain. Who won that primary? 
It was John McCain by 19 points. So the fact is, Granite State voters like to throw some curveballs. And at this point, Bush looks like Trump. We'll see if McCain Same ends point up. in the primary? Same point in the okay. primary in September of 99. That's really interesting. It's not over till it's over. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Hi, Phil. Hey, Poppy. Over here, cross tabs, <laughs> right there in the heart. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, from the campaign trail to the Capitol, a very combative hearing. House Republicans grilled Attorney General Merrick Garland in what could be a preview of President Biden's upcoming impeachment inquiry. Watch. The fix is in. Even with the face-saving indictment last week of Hunter Biden, everyone knows the fix is in. I'm going to say again. I'm going to say again and again if necessary. I did not interfere with, did not investigate, did not make determinations. Those are statements in response to other questions. Everybody in the country now knows who's paying attention to this, that the Justice Department permitted statutes of limitations to expire. Who decided? The White House decided. They serve at the pleasure of the president, right? Mr. Weiss was... Joe Biden decided to keep David Weiss as U.S. attorney. Uh, You weren't sworn in until March. Doesn't it look weird that he's he's become this immediate success in the art world as his dad is president of the United States? Isn't that odd? I'm not going to comment about any specific... Not going to comment, not going to investigate. So we are the committee that is responsible for your creation, for your existence of your department. You cannot continue to give us these answers. Aren't you, in fact, in contempt of Congress when you refuse to answer? Let's dig in on what was a very testy hearing, as it was expected to be. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is with us. Um, the, the fiery exchanges kind of want to put them aside and actually what happened that was tangible. And I want to start not with Hunter Biden, but actually with the indictments of Donald Trump. Uh, Special counsel Jack Smith, what did we learn? Yeah, so the attorney general was emphatic. Joe Biden, he testified, had nothing whatsoever to do with the indictments of Donald Trump or with any criminal indictment under DOJ's purview. Let's take a quick listen to what Merrick Garland said on that count. I reaffirm today, I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. Yeah, I am not the president's lawyer. This is an age-old value of DOJ under administrations of both parties going back generations. Now, here are the facts. Of course, the president appoints the attorney general, who was then confirmed by the Senate, 70 to 30, by the way, in Merrick Garland's case, with substantial Republican support. Merrick Garland, then appointed about a year and a half after he became attorney general, appointed Jack Smith as special counsel. Merrick Garland made clear there is that historical wall of separation between the president and DOJ. Garland even said the decision to charge Donald Trump was not even mine. That was Jack Smith. So there's another wall of separation here. No evidence whatsoever to indicate any involvement by Joe Biden in those indictments of Donald Trump. So that's one key piece. The second, obviously, is very telegraphed, the focus on Hunter Biden, the investigation and the indictment of Hunter Biden as well. What did we learn, though? Is there anything new that stood out to you? So Merrick Garland struggled with this. I think there is more questions than answers provided yesterday about the Hunter Biden prosecution. The one thing Merrick Garland did stress was that the person running this case is David Weiss, who was a U.S. attorney and has now become special counsel. As Merrick Garland stressed several times, he was nominated by Donald Trump. And Merrick Garland stressed that I, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, have not had direct involvement in this case. This has been the purview of David Weiss. Let's take a quick listen to how Merrick Garland described that in his testimony. I have intentionally not involve myself in the facts of the case, not because I'm trying to get out of responsibility, but because I'm trying to pursue my responsibility. So Garland made clear this was not my decision, but there are 
certain questions, important questions that remain. Why was David Weiss made special counsel five years into the investigation? What necessitated that? And why was DOJ willing to go into court about two months ago and take a plea to a misdemeanor for probation? That clearly has changed now. Those questions linger. Jim Jordan will continue to press them. All of this happening as the impeachment inquiry ramps up. First hearing is expected to be next week. Was there anything in this hearing that kind of lays the groundwork for what Republicans may pursue? I think this was a preview of what we're going to see next week. Speaker McCarthy, Jim Jordan, they're going to have a lot of questions for DOJ. DOJ traditionally will not disclose evidence about ongoing cases. What they can do is issue a subpoena. DOJ is going to defy that. If DOJ defies that, watch for the House to try to hold DOJ, maybe the attorney general, in contempt. But ultimately, Phil, that's a symbolic gesture because if there's a contempt finding by Congress, guess where it goes for prosecution? Right back here, they're not going to prosecute their own attorney general. Sounds very familiar to last impeachment, or sorry, the first impeachment of former President Trump, where we saw this entire dynamic play out. Bill Barr was held in contempt, of course not charged. Eric Holder was held in contempt, of course not charged. We may see it again. Yeah, that's a great point. Ali Honig, thank you. Poppy? Thank you both very much. Meantime, Russia bombarding Kyiv just before Ukraine's president heads to Capitol Hill, trying to convince Republicans for more aid. Christian Amanpour at the table next. And new this morning, there appears to be real optimism toward ending the months-long writer's strike, the latest on those late-night negotiations. That's ahead. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will be in Washington today trying to secure continued U.S. military assistance. Now, a little more than a year ago, Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress and was met with loud applause from both sides of the aisle, followed by several rounds of funding from Congress and the White House. But now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has not invited Zelensky to address a joint session, though the two will meet behind closed doors. Here is what McCarthy said this week about Zelensky versus what he said in March of last year. This is an unwarranted war that they did not ask for, but they're willing to defend the right of freedom. We should stand with anyone that's willing to defend freedom. I think that room's united to defend and help um, Ukraine get the weaponry they need to defend themselves. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability on the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? Joining us now is CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour. Um, the contrast of the reception, yeah. not just going back to March, uh, which was a video uh, speech that he gave, but late last year when he uh, was in person and it was very dramatic from both sides of the aisle. Um, that shift, is this a political issue right now or is it deeper than that? You know, it's hard to tell. Obviously, politicians react to their people. You've seen some of the polls that have come out, or n- not just here, in, in Europe as well. President Zelensky spoke to a much less full house than the last time he addressed the UN. Biden and Zelensky stood very firm at the UN this week. It was a week of solidarity for the protection of democracy against dictatorship and autocracy. And so they need to keep making their case. Uh, It is not surprising that he's not again being asked to deliver, you know, to address a joint session. That's not surprising. Question is, will the United States commitment from the administration continue, i.e. that we will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. President Biden wants to, I believe, deliver another $24 billion in military and other assistance. And we'll see what the Congress says. Clearly in the Senate, the minority leader, Republican leader Mitch McConnell, is very uh, pro-defense of freedom and sovereignty for Ukraine. You've been back and back to Ukraine reporting from the ground during this war. Just explain to people what happens if 
Congress doesn't re-up funding. Well, you can see what's happening now, to be frank. The American administration has given an enormous amount of aid over the last year and a half. It has created and sustained an incredible and unprecedented alliance that is still firm, despite all the chit-chat and chatter on the, on the outskirts. But the fact that the counteroffensive is not going as it was way too highly touted, by the way. Expectations were raised to here, yeah. and they will never match that. It is a slow, long slog. But without the, the proper weaponry at the right time, it's just a simple equation. If you don't have it, you can't do it. And so they need to get more of the correct weaponry. And you saw today, I mean, the Russians, they, they don't do things by accident. This massive barrage against the capital, Kiev, obviously... Great, the anti-missile systems that the U.S. and others have sent keep getting most of them, but not all of them. You know, they can take down most of these things, but not all of them. And, you know, we're starting maybe another six weeks, maybe, of, of, of fighting season. Then there's the winter. Then there's a whole thing about, you know, bashing civilian infrastructure again. Yeah. And the cycle continues. Um, <clears throat> Zelensky's in town or in the United States because of the U.N. General Assembly. Yeah. Uh, most people think of this week in New York uh, in part for the traffic, but also because there are critical speeches from world leaders throughout the course of the week. It also means that you have interviews with like 600 really important people basically, on yes, basically every everyone. single important topic in geopolitics. You also, and in this case, you spoke to Al Gore, yeah. the former vice president. What do you say? Well, he, you know, is the major grand, I was going to say grand dame, but of course he's a guy. He's the major leader of the climate activist movement worldwide. Oh, Should I, we listen can we to play? Him? Yeah, sure, sorry. let's do it. One of the reasons why President Biden became president was his advocacy for solutions to the climate crisis. And what he has presided over is the passage of by far the biggest and best climate legislation that any country has ever passed in history. He's done some things I don't agree with, but what he has done in a positive way far outweighs the rest. He has been a genuine leader on this issue. And the Congress passed the IRA. It's, it's going to put more than a trillion dollars into speeding up the deployment of alternative sources of energy. And what happens if a Donald Trump comes back? We oh, saw I, the... I'm not even going to speculate uh, on, on climate. that. Or somebody like him with those I, views. I don't like to speculate on that for the same reason I don't like to watch horror movies. I mean, you could have let him go after I don't like to speculate. I did, but you've you pressed him and you got, him, you got him over there. You got him over the line. I did. What was your takeaway? The, both on the analysis of the climate efforts yeah. from the Biden administration, yeah. but also I think yeah. he gets at a, a critical element yes. behind the scenes. Yes, the, the takeaway is that um, climate is a net positive for the economy because of the alternative energies and economic, you know, uh, endeavors that can, that can really make the situation move ahead. But also he points out that the climate case is supported by the majority of people here, people here and, and in many of the democracies, including, as he pointed out to me, a majority of young Republicans. And he was very upset that the British prime minister that very day, the beginning of climate week, decided to slow roll Britain's climate uh, promises. Right. So he was very upset Which about that. warning of. Yeah. And, and of course, it's He's just trying to say, don't play politics with this existential threat. to our, And we've all been reporting on it. CNN's been doing, you know, breaking news for, for weeks and months of the terrible weather all over the world and all over this country. Another. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yes. She, <laughs> Christian told us she's flying home yeah. after this. And we're sad because we've gotten you at the table for well, more than a week. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you Next very time. much. Yeah. Next time. 
All right, using the power of hip-hop to help his community. Next, you're going to meet the champion for change who has created a safe space for people to talk about their lives and fight against harmful stereotypes. All right, this week, CNN is bringing you a series that we love called Champions for Change, stories of everyday people who embody humanity at its best with new ideas that are leading to great changes. Now, of course, hip-hop involves rhythm, wit, and a whole lot of creativity. I had to define that for you. Listen to hip-hop, please. (laughs) Victor Blackwell's champion is tapping into the power of hip-hop to stretch young people's minds. He calls his innovative gatherings soul food ciphers. Victor Blackwell joins us now. Victor? This was fun to shoot. It was a really good time, and they're doing some great work with Soul Food Ciphers. So my champion is Alex Acosta, also known as Cost One. And this is a great example of a man who took his passion, one of his loves, and a, hmm, I wonder if that would work moment, and created something that I think is extraordinary. Watch. You see the way we're rapping, uh, embracing the freestyle, and see just how it happens. So I chose this story first because I love the art form. I love the music. Hip-hop and rap have been the soundtrack of my teen years, my 20s, 30s, and now 40s, too. Woo! Call me Jackson Oak, like I Elroy. And often when we see these ciphers or we see or hear hip-hop or rap, people assume that it's negative. But in these ciphers, that's not what we see. What we see is people telling their truths, and sometimes they are difficult, but these are loving spaces. It's so real, it's out the lungs. We're giving it to them. Do you want some? Hey, do cost one some. Yeah. Alex, also known as Cost One, creates this safe space where people feel comfortable to talk about what is happening in their lives and where they want to go. It's aspirational as well. Tell me about how you got to not just loving the cypher, loving hip hop, but doing something with it. Where did that start? I realized that there was a magic there. By design, ciphers are ephemeral. They pop up and then they dissipate. Why not create a permanent cipher? So I brought some of my best friends together and we created Soul Food Cipher. We're an organization that has been around for 11 years and we look to showcase the positive elements of hip hop culture through our cipher events and also our workshops and performances as well. So a lot of times rap music, especially popular, mainstream, et cetera, et cetera, The music and the message that you hear justifies a historical negative that black men are violent, misogynistic, black women are overly sexualized, X, Y, Z. So why is the lyrical content important? It's important that we change that narrative. Outside of the monthly ciphers, Soul Food Cipher goes into schools. And this is the part that I think is the most fantastic. What I've learned also from some of the instructors is that it helps them grow as well. As we go through the curriculum and I'm teaching them and allowing them to express these gifts that are already inside of them, they get this feeling and it builds a connection, it builds a bond. They'll share certain things that's like crazy. And it's like, dang, that's what you're going through at home? You know, and and they'll be like, yo, can you come to my soccer game? Nobody comes to my soccer game. Bruh, I used to be that kid like, 
that truck is crazy to me, man. So I'm like, I gotta come back. You get, obviously, a lot out of it, as much as you give to, to these students. Speak to the, the question of why it's important to pass the art form to the next generation. We're using this English language in order to be able to inspire influence. Because sometimes our voice is the only thing we do have. But then you're reminded by your instructor, Bundu, Anand, Breathless, Sofu Cypher, that you have a power and that your voice matters. We're building community and we're building rapport between people. And it's a very, very powerful thing to have like hip hop church. You're gonna see love. And you're gonna see respect, knowledge, joy. You're gonna see smiles. Isn't that a fantastic idea? I mean, I, what I love most about it, and I want to talk a little bit more about taking this into the classroom, is that, yes, this helps to teach language, and you meet the students with an art form that many of them already love, they know the beats, they wanted to be a part of this, and you have these older MCs come in and say, yes, you can do this, but it's also so therapeutic, in a space in which they would tell a truth that maybe if you sat them down with a therapist, or if a teacher simply asked, they would not tell some of those truths. But in that space, the creation of that really safe cipher, these, these children, these students tell more than they would in other spaces. And then you can get to maybe solving some of these things. Fantastic. It was, it was also a lot of fun to shoot. It's so good. It's like the best part of yeah. every day this week. And Victor, that was absolutely outstanding. Victor Blackwell, yeah, thanks. Loved and it. You should... As we've reminded you every day this week, be sure to tune in Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Champions for Change one-hour special. Also new this morning, Hollywood going back to the negotiating table, what we're hearing about a potential deal to end the writer's strike. Plus, Jose, Jose Andres has spent more than a decade helping to feed millions of people facing humanitarian, climate, and community crises. There's a reason his new cookbook is called Feeding Humanity, Feeding Hope. We're going to talk to him about it live, about hope, in his new CNN series. That's next. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Ukraine says its air defenses shot down 36 of 43 Russian missiles fired across the country overnight. Officials there call it a, quote, terrible night of shelling on residential areas. Award-winning chef Jose Andres is no stranger to devastation like this. From the war in Ukraine to the earthquake in Haiti, tornadoes in Kentucky, Chef Andres has spent more than a decade helping feed millions of people facing humanitarian climate and community crises. Now, he's traveling back to his home country of Spain to share the country's food and culture with his American-born daughters. The journey was documented on our sister platform, Discovery Plus, in the series Jose Andres and Family in Spain, which is now coming to CNN. Here's a taste. My girls have a sweet tooth. And of course, they are looking for something sugary to start their day. In Barcelona, the obvious choice is the chucho. Oh, the chucho. And what is a chucho? A croissant? Carmona. What? No. Esto mejor que un croissant. Mira, take a look. This is like this amazing dough that is fried, filled up with cream. Not just any cream. Crema Catalana, almost like a sweet velvety custard with sugar dusted on the crunchy outside. A good croissant is a great thing, lady, but a chucho, a chucho is for the gods. How is it, Carlota? Oh my God. Oh my God, your lips all sugary. It's so creamy and crunchy. 
and sweet. The chucho, oh my gosh. The chuchos are the best thing in the world. Why are croissants everywhere in America? Why can't chuchos be everywhere in America? I think we should take chuchos to the U.S. That's just asking the right questions. Right there, joining us now is award-winning chef, author, and humanitarian, Jose Andres. Thanks so much uh, for being here, for being at the table. Uh, As the president of the White House Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition, I very much appreciate what you brought in (laughs) today. Were you really? No, he is. But you really were that. No, he is literally President Biden's. Yeah. He's, that's what he was. I thought Phil was talking about himself. I know, I remember. No, I, I am, but, <laughs> but like, this is what? only to showcase the traditions no, of our country. Yes, it's purely, yes. No, yeah, it's, if it's, you it's, eat with moderation, everything is great. No chuchos there, <laughs> um, The genesis of this idea, like, especially with the kids going back to your home country, uh, where did it come from? Well, listen, um, this was simple. Uh, I am an immigrant. I came to America 32, 33 years ago. And if it's a country in the world that different people from different parts can feel welcome in America and learn the traditions, I love Thanksgiving. I love, you know, uh, this American Spanish boy growing up. But I feel like the role of immigrants like me is also opening the doors to America, to the other countries. That's the role of immigrants, building bridges. This show, in a way, is opening a door, is opening a window, is building bridges between America and Spain. When you were with us almost a year ago when this was launching on Discovery Plus, you talked about what it meant to you as a father to do this with your daughters, to see the world in this way through their eyes, what you have dedicated your life to. Obviously, uh, my daughters, it's almost like they have the perfect switch uh, in the way they behave when they are in the States or the way they behave when they go back to Spain, where the mother and myself come from. And for me, it was taking my daughters, which they've been going every summer to Spain, but take them to other places. Spain is a small country, but then, like everywhere, it's a big country. And take them to new places and use, show them the places that grow up as a young schoolboy going to culinary school. Uh, for me, this was the m- most amazing uh, moment, not so much... I show about trouble and food, but at the end, uh, a dad and the daughters having a great time together. We even went shooting this show to Ukraine. You mentioned the missiles. Yes, you did. I took one of my daughters with me to Ukraine when missiles already began uh, falling down going back last year in March, April. So you see, life is celebrating the good moments, but then keeping in touch with the reality that the world is a complicated place. But here, what we are doing is obviously celebrating family. Yeah, the father-daughter relationship and watching one, it's hilarious at various points, but it's, it's <laughs> but by far my, my favorite part of the show. I also want to ask you, though, um, about your cookbook. Obviously, everybody knows the humanitarian work you do. We listed uh, not even probably 150th of the places you've been uh, to help. The, the, uh, you recently released the World Central Kitchen Cookbook, Feeding Humanity and Feeding Hope. Why did you decide uh, to do this cookbook? Well... This is a cookbook that really is not mine, even my name is kind of in the cover. This is a book of tens of thousands of people that on every mission, they work alongside the men and women of World Central Kitchen to bring hope in the form of food in some of the biggest disasters. From Turkey earthquake to the volcano in Hawaii or the latest fire to floods and fires in Chile, World Central Kitchen has been there. And those recipes are not really recipes, are the story of the people behind those dishes that brought hope 
in a very dark moment. And you're so intentional about bringing local food to those local areas of disaster. So people really feel that comfort from it and it's not something foreign to them. But this is also the smart thing to do. Yeah. What ingredients you have when you go to, sure, to Haiti? The ingredients of Haiti. Yeah. And the people of Haiti, what they know yeah. what to cook, the traditional Haitian dishes. So it makes sense. It's logical. That's what we, we do. We are so glad you're here taking action. I know you've called on leaders at the UN General Assembly this week, not just to give these speeches, but to take real action. Thank you for what you do. And congrats. We can't wait to have it here on CNN. All right. I'm happy to be part of the family. Oh, good. Be sure to tune in as CNN presents a Discovery Plus original, Jose Andres and Family in Spain. It is Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, right here. Well, new and disturbing allegations against Rudy Giuliani, a former White House aide and star witness in the January 6th hearings, is now claiming she was groped on the day of the insurrection. We'll have those details ahead. The hour. We are so glad you're with us. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, September 21st. Striking writers at heads of studios expected to be back at the table for the second straight day today. A person familiar with those negotiations tells CNN the talks yesterday were left them feeling encouraged. And at any moment now, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will head to Capitol Hill, where he will ask Congress for more ammunition and weaponry and aid for his war against Russia. We are also nine days away from a potential government shutdown. It is still up in the air whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy can find consensus inside of his conference. Now House Democrats are weighing a risky strategy, whether to save McCarthy to get a deal done. And new and disturbing allegations against Rudy Giuliani, former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson says she was groped on the day of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And Ron DeSantis in decline in New Hampshire. A new CNN poll shows the Florida governor has dropped 13 points in the state since July. Now in a virtual tie for second place with three of his rivals and falling further behind the frontrunner Donald Trump. I mean, you know, he was born to great wealth. I'm a blue collar kid that had to work minimum wage jobs to get where I was. Um, you know, he did obviously a lot young in business. You know, I, I volunteered to serve in Iraq and serve in the military. Uh, I could serve two terms. He would be a lame duck on day one. Right, so we're going to dive into the 2024 race in a moment. But new this morning, some optimism in La La Land. Real optimism about maybe this Hollywood writer strike ending. Writers and the heads of four major studios set to meet for a second day in a row. Last night, the two sides put out this joint statement saying they're going to meet again. Now, neither side said anything further than that, often a good sign. But both sides have rebuked each other for comments to the media. So the joint statement together signaled a possible sign of progress. Now, a person familiar told CNN the talks yesterday left attendees, quote, feeling encouraged. Current standoff has now stretched for more than 140 days. The longest writer's strike on record lasted 154 days in 1988. CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy is here with more. Um, haven't seen a lot of optimism at any point over the course of the last uh, few months. Does this seem real to you in your reporting? It's hard to tell. I mean, yesterday people definitely walked away feeling a lot more optimistic, I think, than they felt as of late. A, a source told me, as you said, that they felt encouraged by the talks, and they are, go they are going to meet today. So the four studio bosses are going to sit down with the writers today. And the fact that they did put out that joint statement says so much, because 
these, these two sides have really gone after each other throughout this process over logistics and small stuff. And the fact that they put out a joint statement and were on the same page there uh, says volumes. Uh, so there's hope in Hollywood right now that this could be coming to an end. We'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, anything can happen because these two sides do have a history of, uh, of you know, having a hard time being on the same page. Yeah, and we're, what, two weeks away from this being the longest one ever and costing some $6 billion? And the problem for the studios and and for the writers, really, is if they don't iron out a deal soon, within the next two, three weeks, the idea of a, you know, salvaging the season and the shows coming back in the winter and January like they normally would goes out the window. And so then even if you have a deal next month, there's going to be no work for a lot of these television writers because the shows won't be coming back in January. And so there is some pressure because of this looming deadline to get something done. And we should also note, too, that it's not just the writers. It's not just the actors. There's a whole industry in California built around entertainment. And all of these people, there's been major ripple effects uh, across the industry uh, that have affected, you know, people who just do cater biz- catering businesses or, yeah, a, a ton of businesses. Of yeah. yeah. The pressure points are what often ends up resolving situations like this. You mentioned the, the kind of calendar pressure. There's clearly a financial pressure. What's been the biggest driver <clears throat> to even just this joint statement uh, that didn't uh, infuse a ton of acrimony between the two sides? Yeah, I, I, I think that both sides, actually, the one thing they've agreed on throughout this whole process is this has gone on too long. We need resolution. And now with this looming deadline, now that, I mean, both sides have felt extreme pain, maybe they can get something done now. Hopeful, to some degree. Hopeful. It's been going on a long time. Oliver Darcy, great reporting. Keep us posted. This seems to be moving. Maybe. Also, this breaking overnight, the White House is sending 800 new active duty troops to the southern border. This is, we see pictures like this. This is in Eagle Pass, Texas. Yesterday, crowds of migrants under a bridge. The mayor there says 2,500 people crossed the border just yesterday alone. Joining us now, CNN anchor and senior political correspondent, Abby Phillip. Good morning. Hey, guys. Good morning. Nice to have you here. This is interesting because Mayorkas was saying yesterday, I think he did a speech or something, and he was talking about like admitting, yes, things have gotten worse, surging again at the border. The Biden administration is taking um, some action in terms of the temporary protected status to Venezuelans, which you would think would help a situation like here in New York as well as Texas. Where do we stand? This problem continues to get worse. Yeah. And what's interesting is that every time the Biden administration seems to take a step that Uh, is aimed at encouraging migrants to seek asylum in other ways or seek uh, some kind of status in other ways other than taking that journey up to the United States, there's a lull and then we're back to where we are. So this flow is really unrelenting at this point and you're seeing the ripple effects. That move on the Venezuelans that was announced yesterday is a huge deal. It's half a you know, billion people. It's a lot of people. And it was aimed at trying to help New York. I spoke to the governor last of New York last night. Yeah, we saw. And they uh, begged for this because they need people who are here to have work status. But she said something interesting that it only applies to people who arrived at a certain point, not beyond a certain point, because the Biden administration is really concerned about not incentivizing people by offering some kind of work status or legal status on the other side if you come now. It's been a huge reason for the hesitation up until yesterday as the governor and mayors, local officials, House of Representatives folks have been calling for that and it was finally delivered on. Um, 
We see President Zelensky heading to Capitol Hill today, and I was struck by another interview you had with a congressman, Tim Burchett, and his position on the overall funding debate, but also Ukraine funding and where things stand. How do you think this ends, and does it include Ukraine funding? Look, it's not going to end clearly. I think, look, McCarthy, as you know, wants to say, we have this all tied up in a bow. We're going to have a vote today. We're going to get this done by by the weekend. It doesn't sound like that is going to happen. There are still at least a handful of Republicans like Ted Burchett who are opposed to this, and they're opposed to it on very broad grounds. It's not a question of is the dollar amount slightly less than the one before it. Uh, They don't want Ukraine funding. They don't want CRs at all. They, uh, meaning continuing resolutions, they want uh, budgets, actual full budgets. Now, everybody wants that. But the question is, how long are they going to push it? And what are McCarthy's options going to be? It is not going to be acceptable to the Senate, Republicans or Democrats, to have a bill that doesn't have funding for Ukraine, to have a bill that cuts funding for the Defense Department. So the ball really is now still in McCarthy's court. How long does he try to play ball with the far right? He only has about a week left. And at what point does he decide we've got to get something done and that something is going to be a bipartisan compromise Mm -hmm. with Democrats in the House as well? And then does that cost him his speakership? It's a good question. But I think there might be a separate question. How many Republicans are opposed to these continuing resolutions and how many are willing to vacate McCarthy from the speakership? They might not be the same group uh, because I think a lot of people recognize that what's the alternative? They don't have one. Uh, They don't have one that can get the votes that are needed to to elect a new speaker. So I think you might start to see some cracks there when it comes to the motion to vacate. And certainly the moderates, uh, and even some people who were kind of tepidly on McCarthy's side, look at those people to see how they handle this brinksmanship again. Because this is obviously not the first time we've seen this. Uh, they, this has become a pattern, and some people on the Hill are getting frustrated. Um, the allegations laid out by Cassie Hutchison, yeah. uh, Directed at Rudy Giuliani. It's coming from her new book. Um, they're serious allegations. Uh, I want to play some sound from uh, Alyssa Farah, who worked with Cassie Hutchinson at the White House. Take a listen. I, well, I trust her implicitly. Um, I remember about two years ago her alluding to something, and I don't want to misrepresent the words, either he was creepy or handsy with me. But to put it into bigger context, those of us who were working the West Wing at that time knew that Rudy Giuliani was a wild card. He was somebody who was unpredictable. Um, being careful in how I say this, there were concerns. I don't know if they're true that he would come to the White House campus inebriated. Now, Giuliani's camp has pushed back uh, on the allegations and said it's just tied to her book and that they are lies. Um, That is a little bit of what we would call a second source in the business, not direct, but having some implication of a conversation. What was your takeaway after talking to Alyssa? Yeah, I mean, my my takeaway from Alyssa is that the environment around Giuliani at the White House was one where a lot of staffers were basically told sort of beware. Uh, And whether it, it moved into actual sexual assault, Alyssa believes... Cassidy here. Uh, She alluded to something like this in the past, sort of independent of all of this. Now, the allegation from the Giuliani camp is that she's just doing this to make money. Look, I I think that the perspective of people who know her, like Alyssa, is she doesn't want to be doing any of this. 
right? She doesn't want to be going up against the former president of the United States, going up against his allies, going up against Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so the idea that she would bring put this on the table just to create more chaos for herself, people who know her don't think that that is credible. And so there is a, a willingness to say uh, she would not say this if it were not real. And on top of that, look, we've talked about Giuliani before. There have been allegations against him that on the election night, he was overly inebriated. So this is not the first time we've heard of allegations about his behavior, about him not being in control of himself, which is how Alyssa put it. And we'll see what, what happens. We'll see if Cassidy decides to do anything more with it, seek legal action, uh, which probably is, is on the table for her. Uh, but this is good, a, a very serious allegation. We'll hear a lot more from her next week when her book does come out. Abby Phillip, thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's great to see you. really great to see you guys. Great show last night with all those interviews. Thank you. See you tonight. The show, the watch show. it. It's great interviews, but it's always great interviews. Uh, it's nice to have her in. Yeah, yeah, it's, tough. Nice. it's a tough yeah, turnaround. We appreciate it. <laughs> Anything for you guys. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy trying to avoid a government shutdown. We were just talking about that. Some members of his conference seem to be losing faith in him, though. If Speaker McCarthy relies on Democrats to pass a continuing resolution, uh, I would call the Capitol moving truck to his office pretty soon because my expectation would be he'd be out of the Speaker's office quite promptly. As we were just talking about Democrats, McCarthy's only hope to stave off a shutdown and, by the way, to keep his job. House Democratic Whip, Catherine, Congresswoman Catherine Clark joins us next. And coming up, New York City has started enforcing new rules cracking down on short-term rentals. It's making Airbnbs a lot harder to find. Airbnb CEO and co-founder Brian Chesky will join us to discuss. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. And we have some new CNN reporting as you look at that clock behind me. Just nine days to cut a spending deal. Still no Republican consensus in sight. Speaker Kevin McCarthy may have to rely on Democratic support. But some members of McCarthy's party, like Congressman Matt Gates, are warning that teaming up with Democrats would be akin to signing his, quote, own political death warrant. If Speaker McCarthy relies on Democrats to pass a continuing resolution, uh, I would call the Capitol moving truck to his office pretty soon because my expectation would be he'd be out of the Speaker's office quite promptly. Would the Speaker's job be in peril if he relies on Democrats? Uh, it wouldn't be a good move. Now, House Democrats, according to CNN reporting, have begun internal discussions about the possibility of saving McCarthy's job as Speaker should Republicans move to oust him. Quote, while no decisions have been made, some of the party's moderates are privately signaling they'd be willing to cut a deal to help McCarthy stave off a right-wing revolt as long as the Speaker meets their demands. That's in our CNN story from our Capitol Hill team. Joining us now is House Democratic Whip, Congresswoman Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to get to that in a minute, but to kind of start in terms of we've had the clock up. You guys know the shutdown clock because we've been doing it seemingly on an annual basis for the last mm -hmm. decade or so. You have seen, I think, probably the outlines that have been reported about what Republicans are considering this morning, the latest iteration of what might be able to get them uh, to and through the House floor. Is there anything in that proposal in terms of the spending levels dropping significantly uh, the fiscal commission and the border security legislation that you think would ever get to the president's desk? 
Let me tell you my perspective on this. We have made no progress here under Kevin McCarthy. And the roots of this are back in January, where he sold out the American people's interests to gain a speakership from the most extreme members of his party. Kevin McCarthy has already made a bipartisan deal. That was done in June. And his long past time, he lives up to that. What we're seeing is as he tries to protect his own job, he is forgetting about the needs of the people who sent him here to govern. So when people call my office, they are concerned about social security and veteran benefits. Right. They are concerned about the high cost of living. Kevin McCarthy and the extremists are concerned about keeping Kevin in office. I, th I think what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what you heard from Matt Gates or Chip Roy or others threatening a motion to vacate, trying to remove the speaker from the, his job if Democrats, uh, if he goes to Democrats for votes on a stopgap bill. Is there any scenario where he doesn't have to come to Democrats for votes on a stopgap bill to actually prevent a shutdown? He already came to Democrats. That is the deal we set in June. So all of this is complete nonsense, but it's a dangerous game. Back in June, he made a deal with the president of the United States after taking the economy hostage, catering to these extremists and their agenda of burning government down. And what he did then was totally roll it back. We right. had 314 bipartisan votes in the House of Representatives for that deal. The answer is right in front of him. But what he is choosing is his own power. And what he is doing to get there is catering to an extreme agenda. It doesn't have to be this way. When Democrats were in charge, we made investments in infrastructure and manufacturing and reducing the costs of insulin and health care. Yeah. We did it with a slim majority. It is time for the Republicans in the GOP to put the people they serve first. I think you get at a critical point here. The reason he walked away from the deal that he made within 10 days was because of where his conference is. The reason that he is not signing on with Democrats right now on a stopgap bill is because of where his conference is, which begs the question tied to the CNN reporting. Can you assure him that if he were, uh, if there was an attempt to oust him, that Democrats would help him so long as they came to the table on a stopgap that you guys would agree with? Would you save Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> this is a parlor game in D.C. about speculating over a motion to vacate, a motion to How get How is it a parlor of, game? Lawmakers are saying it out loud. <laughs> because that is not what is really at stake here. This is not about Kevin McCarthy's job. It is about his leadership. And right now there is a void of leadership. There is a bipartisan deal. Senate Republicans understand that, Senate Democrats, the White House, and House Democrats. There is one small group in the House GOP. This is what happens, and we saw the seeds of this back in January with 15 rounds of votes. Right. He has turned the gavel over to extremists. They control him. The way out of this is to live up to his word, the bipartisan deal he already signed. Talk about whether Democrats would save his job is frankly irrelevant. 
Let's move forward on the deal we have. Let's get to work for the American people who are looking at this and they don't see themselves in anything that the House GOP is putting out there. And so this is a parlor game, a dangerous one. But do you understand that if the connection to going back to the original deal that he signed, I'm not trying to to frustrate you. I, I know how cognizant you are of the dynamics on Capitol Hill. I think what I'm just trying to figure out is if the outcome is his, he loses his job if he sticks to the deal because he doesn't have the votes within his conference, and there are discussions among some of your moderates about, all right, do we need to have his back here? When does that filter up to the leadership level? Well, uh, you know, this is what I can say to you. We're going to continue to center what people need. Everywhere I travel in this country, people are worried about the highest cost of living. They're worried that these extremists are coming for their reproductive freedoms. They are worried they're coming for Social Security (coughs) and Medicare. And what we are going to do is say we have been here. We're here with a deal. And we expect Kevin McCarthy to keep his word. We have a bipartisan agreement, and what flows from that is going to be good for the American people, good for the economy, and ultimately good for Kevin McCarthy. But what we're seeing is a leader who refuses to lead, who is only concerned with his own power. Congresswoman Catherine Clark, um, it's a busy time on Capitol Hill. <laughs> I appreciate your time. I know you also have a meeting, a uh, closed-door meeting with President Zelensky shortly. Ukraine aid is a part of this uh, as well, so we don't want to keep you away from that. Um, but we appreciate your time, and thanks for laying out the dynamics. Thank you. Great interview, Phil. All right, ahead, uh, the CEO and the co-founder of Airbnb says we're living through, quote, the loneliest time in human history What does he mean and how is he working to overcome his own struggle with it? Brian Chesky here live in studio with more. So you may have noticed it's a lot harder to find an Airbnb in one of the world's top tourist destinations. That's right here in New York City, where officials started enforcing new rules, cracking down on all short-term rentals. And the rules mean a lot of listings on sites like Airbnb are no longer available unless property owners have registered with the city and done a whole lot of changes. The requirements for approval are strict. No more than two guests at a time. The host must be present during the rental. A city council member here explained why they're cracking down. We were concerned about um, individuals turning rent-stabilized apartments into turning them basically into hotels, uh, which would have uh, have a, a very negative effect on our affordable housing prices. Regulations not just hitting New York. You've got cities and towns across the country, from Palm Springs to Portland to Maine, uh, all doing this. They're big changes. Joining us now to talk about this and a lot more, Airbnb CEO and co-founder Brian Chesky. It's good to have you at the Thank table. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, a lot of experts and those folks, I know you guys don't like these changes. They say you take away homes that are that people should be able to rent to live in and you make it unaffordable. Well, we want to make neighborhoods stronger. <clears throat> in fact, I started Airbnb because my roommate and I couldn't afford to pay rent. <clears throat> and one of the things we do is we work with cities all over the world. Airbnb is in 100,000 cities. Thousands of cities have figured this out from London to Paris to even San Francisco. And there's very simple systems, like we can have a registration system, we can limit people to rent if they live in the city. And one of the things we found is that that some of the top professions of New York Coast were healthcare workers, Mm -hmm. social workers, nurses, students. These are primarily everyday people. 
And when you take these Airbnbs down, I don't think the housing prices are going to go down, but I do think hotel prices are going to go up. I think this moment for you guys is really interesting. And you've sort of been open about this reckoning your company is having having, and trying to get back to sort of some of the basics of when you started it. I do want to play a complaint for you. This is just one of, you know, many people. This is their issue with Airbnb right now. Here it is. If you are Airbnb, I'm going to tell you in real time why no one wants to book with you anymore. And here's why. Okay, here we go. We're going for two nights. $73 a night. Perfect. Within our budget. So it should be around $150. No, $275 after taxes and all of the fees. Okay. You went on Twitter and you yep. asked people, what do we need to change? Because yes. you're hearing this, Brian. Oh, yeah. So what are you changing to well, respond want, to people yeah, like exactly. this? So I always want to be the kind of CEO that's on the ground listening to customer feedback. In the beginning of the year, I, like, we started really going deep on people's complaints. We went on social media. We created a blueprint in the entire experience. And we made 53 upgrades based on the experience. Then I went on Twitter. And I said, tell me what else we can fix about Airbnb. I got 3,000 responses. The top eight suggestions, we've knocked down five of them most recently. People say that like prices in Airbnb are more expensive than they used to be. In the last year, our prices are down 1%, while hotel prices are up 10%. And that's because we've done new, uh, new pricing tools. People said they didn't like the They're cleaning fees. They're still more expensive than they used to be. They are more expensive than they used to be, but they are not going up as fast as hotels in the last year. That's important. Yeah. Cleaning fees, 260,000 hosts have reduced or removed cleaning fees. We now have 3 million listings without cleaning fees. I think the basic idea is this. We want people to love our service. That means that every single day we're going to work and we are listening to customer feedback and we're continuing to bring the community along and the improvements we're making. Do you, uh, I'm sure you saw this headline, The Atlantic, just two days ago, quote, Airbnb is really different now. And they're they're arguing, it's not the scrappy startup it used to be. It's not what you founded it as. Obviously, companies grow. But I thought it was interesting. You said a few days ago, we can't improve our reputation (laughs) until after we've solved these issues. Yes. It seems like you see your company sort of has gone from what you built in that apartment that I first interviewed you in in San Francisco, and you're trying to get it back there. Is that right? Oh, yeah, and we've been doing that for a number of years, and I think that we are getting very close to where we need to be, but it's going to take time for people to really feel like, you know, know, if you look at the stats on Airbnb, the number of five-star reviews is higher than it's ever been. The satisfaction is actually statistically higher than it's ever been. In May, we launched Airbnb Rooms an all-new take on the original Airbnb where you can stay with a host in their home. That's still very popular. I'm hosting people every like, couple months in my house. <laughs> and, I, and that's part of getting back to the basics is using the product yourself. So I, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about something that I have never heard a CEO talk about, certainly a Silicon Valley <laughs> CEO billionaire. Loneliness. Yeah. Why are you so worried about people being lonely? Why are you lonely? Well, first of all, maybe the reason I'm worried about it is because the Surgeon General in the beginning of the year put out a report, and you know, the Surgeon General's put out a report like tobacco. It's very concerning. And they said that we're living in a loneliness epidemic. Vivek Murthy. And that, like, you know, depending upon what, what stats you read, somewhere between a third and two thirds of Americans are feeling lonely. And that has a pernicious effect on their, lo- in their mental health. And if you look at teenagers, as many as two out of three teenagers mm-hmm. are feeling lonely. Now, why is this? I think modern life is starting to isolate us inadvertently. You know, the mall becomes um, Amazon and the theater becomes Netflix and the office becomes Zoom and all these. Um, and, and it's not they're not it's not anyone's fault. It's just that all these things are a step forward, but they ultimately maybe have effect of isolating us. And we need to still get out. And the reason I'm talking about it is because I think, you know, maybe our service 
we can point the service to be helpful. There's a lot of things I could yeah. do with our time and our money, but we want to help bring people together, encourage people to travel together. But you lived this? You are living this? Oh, yeah. I mean, with the pandemic, I live alone, or I, li- I lived alone, and I was at one point by myself, then I got a dog. But I, I started realizing, and one of the other things I noticed is the more successful I got, I thought I'd have a lot more people surrounding me. And it's true, but often that has a way of isolating you. And it's not to say that my story is unique. It's a story that no matter who you are, you can be lonely, you can be isolated, and you've got to really work to connect with other people around you. Um, I know President Obama helped guide you out of this loneliness. Is that right? Well, he gave me some advice. And one of the things, a piece of advice he gave me was that he stayed really connected to his old friends, his close friends from high school, from college. And I think a lot of us probably have friends from high school. We have friends from college. We have friends from our past, but we haven't picked up the phone. We haven't spent time with them. And one of the best things somebody could do if they're feeling isolated is know they're not truly alone, that there are many people out there. They just have to reach out and rekindle those relationships. We all remember the moment when Airbnb went public. And I want to play people the moment you realized and we're told on live television, this is a $100 billion company making you a multi-billionaire. Here's that moment. Shares indicated to open right now at $139 a share, which is more than double. That's the first time I've heard that number. I I don't know what else to say. It, it's that that's a that's a that's a very that that's um, that is yeah, I'm very humbled by it. <laughs> but then you've called some of those months the saddest of your life. Did it feel good when you got to the top of that mountain? I think that so many of us like if there's something missing in our life, we want to climb a mountain feeling that by the top we get to that, the time we get to the top of the mountain, we're going to feel different. And maybe for a moment you do, that moment you stand on the top of the mountain, and then when it settles in, you go back to the feeling like the way you were before, and you start realizing maybe everything I needed to be happy was already inside myself, and I need to look inward. And it's really, ultimately, happiness is not just about climbing a mountain. It's about the people that are with you along the way. And as long as you bring those people close, you can be happy. You said, I was shocked when I heard this, finally, Brian. If I die, will I die Brian Chesky or the Airbnb guy just died? That's kind of a wow, stop you in your tracks moment. So much of my life has been completely dedicated to Airbnb. And many of us, if we're not careful, we can become the thing we're trying to pursue. And we can lose a little bit of a sense of who we are as a person and be able to have a little bit of boundaries and know that there's Airbnb and there's me and I'm a distinct person and I need to invest in myself. And that is a really, really important thing. And hopefully people get to know me, not just as the Airbnb guy, but as Brian, a guy that lives in San Francisco with a dog named Sophie and, you know... (laughs) And makes chocolate chip cookies. And takes chocolate chip cookies for his guests. Uh, Thank you for opening up about this. I think a lot of us have felt it or are feeling it. um, And we always think you guys have it all. No, everyone is more similar than we imagine. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Appreciate it. Phil. Well, members of worker unions have historically voted Democrat, but new data suggests a growing shift. Harry Anton is here to break it all down. Stay with us. Well, new this morning, there appears to be real optimism about progress toward ending the Hollywood writers' strike. Writers and the heads of four major studios are set to meet for a second consecutive day. A person familiar told CNN the talks yesterday left attendees feeling encouraged. A deadline is nearing for both sides to hammer out a deal if they want to salvage the winter portion of the television season. The economic toll of the writers' and actors' strikes is approaching $6 billion across multiple industries. 
This morning, a historically pretty Democratic group of American voters are increasingly voting Republican. After three years of inflation, higher interest rates, union workers are complaining. Many are feeling pushed out of the middle class. And now as President Biden calls himself the most pro-union president ever, some of those union workers are saying they're not so sure that he is on their side. Harry Anton here with the numbers. Harry, good morning. I was just really interested in Knowing what the actual numbers are, because obviously Trump's going to Detroit next week. Republicans are trying to take the state again and the Senate and the presidential race. Do the union voters look like they're going to help them? Yeah. So, you know, look, let's take a look at this morning's number. And that is, look, Joe Biden won union members by 22 points back in 2020. But look, Democrat Harry Truman won them by 62 points back in 1948. So over the last 70 years, we've seen an increasingly increasing push among union voters to vote more Republican, even if they still vote Democratic. And I will note this. There is a massive divide within union members between college graduates and non-college graduates and how they vote. Among college graduates, look at that. Joe Biden won union members by 46 points. But among non-college graduates, Donald Trump actually won them by six points. So there's been a real shift, especially among non-college graduate union members. But there's also been a real shift in terms of demographic changes, right? What, what's that been? Yeah, so... How about this? Share of union members with a college degree, voters, in 2020, it was 51 percent. Back in 1952, it was just 2 percent. So we've seen union members become increasingly more part of the college-educated group. And more than that, you know, we talk about who are union members, right? 2022 workers who are union members, look at that. 33 percent of those in the public sector are part of a union. Among the private sector, it's just 6 percent. This number was basically triple 40 years ago. Private sector members, union members, have dropped a ton, guys. It's fascinating. The numbers are fascinating and also very important. Harry, as always, my friend, thank you. Thank you. To some, the Astor family represents sort of the quintessential American dream, right? John Jacob Astor, a German immigrant, first arrived in the U.S. in 1783 and made his fortune on the beaver fur trade, going on to become America's first multimillionaire and leaving behind a legacy stamped across New York City, including in one of my favorite subway stations, Sarah's Astor Place in Greenwich Village. Look at that. That is in the subway there, still adorned with a beaver. The famed Waldorf Astoria Hotel, created by two Astor cousins. Now, when Astor's grandson died on the Titanic in 1912, he passed down $69 million. In today's estimation, that's the equivalent of $2 billion. Billion with a B. Now, CNN's Anderson Cooper, a descendant of a different New York dynasty, the Vanderbilt fan, uh, family, is peeling back the curtain in his new book, Astor, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. And Anderson joins us now. Hey, good hey, morning. Uh, I should warn you, Poppy's been talking about the subway station. I'm obsessed. Beaver. I Astor, never... Yeah, it's fascinating morning. that, you know, there's remnants of the Astor family. You see their name all over in, in many places in America. But, <clears throat> but yeah, Astor Place uh, is where they live. They owned all the land there. They owned Gren the land of Greenwich Village. But yeah, in the Astor Place subway stop, there's ceramic beavers... Uh, which is uh, homage to John Jacob Astor, who, and that's the, the first way he made his first fortune. He plowed it all into New York real estate and basically owned much of the land that New York was built on. It, first of all, the book opens, chapter one, there's this quote above every chapter, and the, the first quote is, after Ms. Astor, there was disaster. And the way, I, just in chapter one, the way you open it up talking about your personal experience, mm -hmm. it just takes us right into why this isn't just history. Yeah. This is sort of still living and there are lessons in it for us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We look at, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, and these, you know, these huge fortunes that are created today. And we think, wow, there's never been anybody like Elon Musk. But there actually has been. John Jacob Astor was sort of the Elon yeah. Musk of that day, Commodore Vanderbilt, uh, 
who I also wrote about in our last book, it, it was, was it the same way. And I'm fascinated by how these quote unquote great fortunes are created and the ripple effects of it over the generations. Along those lines, and I, I find the analog between kind of the Musk's and Bezos's to uh, that era, the second Gilded Age, I think is mm-hmm. we refer to it as, fascinating. But it, should the takeaway be that money ruins everything to some degree? Because I, I mean, feel like these aren't exactly the happiest, most uh, there, Yeah, there's a lot of pain in the Astro family. Yeah. Look, I think the, the, or, the originators of these fortunes, whether it's Commodore Vanderbilt or John Jacob Astor, certainly in Commodore Vanderbilt's case, and I think you could argue in John Jacob Astor, I mean, the, the pathological desire to succeed and make money overrode most things in their lives. They weren't necessarily, I think there was a pathology to it. I don't think you do what it takes to build a fortune like this without being driven by something that probably doesn't come from a secure, happy place necessarily. Um, but the, the pathology infects, you see it time and time again, that, that pathology infects previ- the, the next generations. You know, Commodore Vanderbilt, John Jacob Astor, we're not particularly great fathers and pretty cruel to a lot of people in their orbits. Um, their focus was the money and everything else sort of, you know, took second place. There's this part in the book I was looking for. My, they, I guess they gave me a new copy, but in my marked up copy of the uh, book, um, and it's in the first chapter, and it's this story that was so striking. It's about Brooke Astor, and you run into her at a restaurant. I think it's 1981. Right. And then you become a waiter yeah. at the restaurant. And then, and then you write this from that experience. I got to see what my future might look like from the other side of the table. I didn't like what I saw. It got me thinking about what kind of person I wanted to be. What side of the table did I want to be on if I even wanted to be at the table? And we've all seen what you've chosen to do with your life since then and how you conduct it and the reporting you do. How did that moment form the Anderson we know today? Yeah, I was working in this place called Mortimer's, which in the, at the time, in the mid eighties was this Upper East Side where the sort of Upper East Side establishment would eat. My mom would eat there. I used to eat there with my mom as a kid. And I met Brooke Astor there when I was little. I met her again when I was a waiter at Mortimer's, dressed as a waiter. She didn't recognize me as the waiter. And I had that experience a lot that summer I was serving people who had met me through my mom and treated me one way when I'm standing next to my mom, Gloria Vanderbilt. But as their waiter, it was a very different uh, interaction that we had because they didn't recognize me. And I found that to be a remarkable and important education. Did it shift what you did? Absolutely. I mean, seeing things from the other side of the table and realizing I didn't really want to be at the table at all. And and this was not something I didn't want to be you know, having these lunches and, and stuff like that. And it was a it was a great education and that I'm incredibly grateful for. How much of that experience do you want to carry? I should let you know, when my wife and I were talking about this last night, all she cared about was ask Anderson how his sons are doing. Yeah. And I was like, I think I can do that offset. But you also, you dedicated this book to yeah. your sons. Yeah, yeah. Your book about the Vanderbilts, I think, was in part because you wanted your children to learn from that experience. Yeah. What, what do you want them to take away from Look, that? Look, I, th- I think, uh, you know, you, you, time and time again, you see how generations of people in the Astor family, you know, the men who had youthful exuberance to become a writer or a poet or whatever it was, John Jacob Astor kind of reached out his long hand and brought them back and made them work in the Astor counting house. Uh, you know, it, it was a very ruthless business that they had. I want my kids to, to you know, figure out what they're passionate about and figure out what they can do. And I want to help them as much as possible. But I, I don't believe, uh, I think that that idea of inherited wealth, I think it can really infect and suck initiative from, from generations. And I think that's something I think a lot, that's certainly something I think a lot about. Yeah. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Two books? Well, no, you had one of them a long time ago. Three books under your belt? Uh, four. This four. Is book, okay. With all that counting. time that you have. Four. Yes. Yes. Multiple jobs yeah. and other things. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, this breaking overnight, the Pentagon is sending 800 new active duty troops to the southern border, and the White House just gave nearly a half a million Venezuelan migrants temporary protections. New York City Mayor Eric Adams with us next. Brand new this morning, the White House is sending 800 new active duty troops to the southern border as we and they see pictures like this out of Eagle Pass, Texas. Crowds of migrants under a bridge. The mayor uh, says 2,500 people crossed the border yesterday alone. The administration has also just announced humanitarian relief to hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans already in the United States. New York City Mayor Eric Adams joins us now by phone. Mr. Mayor, we appreciate your time. I want to start with this is something you have been calling for, uh, temporary protected status expansion uh, for a while now. Have you spoken to the White House? Are you happy with how this turned out? Uh, Yes, uh, I spoke with the uh, White House uh, last night, and uh, we need to be clear on where we are. Uh, We appreciate uh, the uh, TPS for uh, 15,000 people who are eligible that are currently in our care. But as you uh, indicated, uh, we have 60,000 that's in our care. We're getting 10,000 a month, and this surge may continue. And so this is a good move in the direction. Um, Since April, we've been calling for this, and I want to thank the congressional delegation, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries and Senator Schumer, Uh, But this is really moving in the right direction. But we have a long way to go. It sounds like you're saying, Mayor, this is a good start, but we need more. Is part of the issue that this ends at people that came in after July 31st? So that means any new Venezuelan migrants coming into the city since then, this will not apply to? Correct. And that's a good point that you're asking, uh, because we're not only getting um, asylum seekers from Venezuela. We're getting them from uh, West Africa. We're getting them from uh, Russian speaking areas, South and Central America. And so uh, this is an important step uh, for the 15,000 people who are in our care. uh, But it's uh, in the overall crisis that we continue to have. And the cost that's associated with it, we spent $2 billion. It's going to cost us $5 billion during this fiscal year and $12 billion uh, in the, during the uh, next two cycles. Mr. Mayor, the, your relationship between the, the governor's office and the White House has been, uh, I think, something a lot of people have been paying attention to over the last several months because of this issue specifically. Um, how would you characterize your relationship with the White House right now? I know you spoke to them last night, but the president was up here. You guys didn't meet. I, I don't think, based on my understanding, there have been many conversations between the two of you over the course of the last several months. Where does that stand, given this issue, as you noted, is still very much a live issue? And, and I am extremely clear. Uh, my results must be for the city of New York. And if I can get those results by speaking to the chief of staff of the White House or Uh, any other representative, I'm going to do that. Uh, The goal is, uh, I think the president uh, is doing a great job on many issues in this country. Uh, My focus is this migrant and asylum issue uh, that is extremely hurtful and harmful to the city of New York. And I think 
Today's last night's decision is the starting point of what we can do. We can't spike the ball, but we appreciate that 15,000 uh, migrant asylum seekers are now uh, something that we can look towards moving out of our care. But we still have, again, 10,000 coming a month and over 60,000 that are in our care. Governor Hochul of New York told our colleague Abby Phillip on her show last night that she would support temporarily rescinding what is known in New York City as this right to shelter mandate. A lot of your critics, as you know, have said, well, essentially, he said this can be a, the sanctuary city. And so therefore, this is what has come. Do you, what do you say to them? And do you would you support removing temporarily that right to shelter mandate? Our, our legal team is looking at every aspect of, of right to shelter and every aspect of what we are responsible to do. And uh, when you remove it, uh, we still have the issues of people coming to this city. We don't want people sleeping on our streets. I saw what happened in El Paso and other municipalities. Uh, we need to resolve the issue, and that includes uh, immigration reforms that many Republicans have been holding up. Uh, but it also includes making sure all of these cities are not carrying the burden of a national issue. It's, it's wrong for New York City, as well as other municipalities in this country, to be carrying a national issue. Mr. Mayor, I, I want to play for people because this got a, a strenuous pushback from some, but also helped highlight, uh, I think, the scale and the urgency of the issue in your eyes, at least. Uh, something you said a couple of weeks ago. Take a listen. Never in my life. Have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to? I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. Now, Mr. Mayor, subsequently, uh, there was an interview that I, I listened to and watched where you provided some clarity and I think context to those statements, um, which pushed back on some of the criticism you got. But... That position right now, does that stand, your view on this and what it could mean? Uh, yes, uh, it, it does stand. And I think you see the surge at the border, uh, 2,500 in one day to one city. Uh, and, you know, people wanted to distort my words as to say that migrants and asylum seekers would destroy the city. That is not true. They should not be going through this. They should not be living in these conditions. When I take $12 billion out of my budget, that is going to impact how I deal with low-income New Yorkers, the services that I provided for them, the long-term impact to my seniors, to my housing. Uh, this is a severe issue that we don't want to get out of control. And when you see the continuous flow that you reported at the beginning of this uh, conversation, you realize that where is the end in sight? This is a national problem, and New York City taxpayers should not be picking up the cost of a national problem, and asylum seekers and migrants should not be living in this condition. Mayor Eric Adams, thank you very much for calling in on a critical issue. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Take care. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Have a great day. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.